Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Are you searching for the best in online black radio? Then go to BlackTalkRadioNetwork.com. Helping you filter through the noise. Real talk. Black talk. Two-thirds a person Great things and beatings And suffering and worsens Black human packages Tied up in strings Black rage can come from all These kinds of things Black rage is founded on Blatant denial Sweet economics Subsistence survival Deafening silence And social control just found in all wounds in the soul. In the past decade alone, January 24th, 2004, Timothy Stansberry, Brooklyn, New York, unarmed. November 25th, 2006, Sean Bell, Queens, New York, unarmed. January 1, 2009, Oscar Grant, Oakland, California, unarmed. January 29th, 2010, Aaron Campbell, Portland, Oregon, unarmed. July 18th, 2011, Alonzo Ashley, Denver, Colorado, unarmed. March 7th, 2012, Wendell Allen, New Orleans, Louisiana, unarmed. September 14th, 2013, Jonathan Farrell, Charlotte, North Carolina, unarmed. July 17th, 2014, Eric Garner, Staten Island, New York, unarmed. August 9th, 2014, Michael Brown, Ferguson, Missouri, unarmed. The story begins with the death of Baldwin's father, which happened just before the shooting. He was a severe man, a minister who was suspicious of all white people. But after James left home to work in New Jersey, after he was refused service in bars and restaurants and bowling alleys because of the color of his skin, he began to understand his father's point. He realized that his father had carried, as he put it, the weight of white people in the world. The trouble in Harlem that summer started because a white man had shot a black man. This is about Trayvon Martin. This is about Jordan Davis, Eric Gardner, Michael Brown, Ezeal Brown, who was shot in L.A. a couple days ago. Today in St. Louis, I think you said a couple blocks away, another African-American man was shot and killed today. They said he had a, a knife. But uh, I just think there's a war on the black male, and uh, it's, it's tearing the country apart. Driver, let me see your hands. Everybody stick their hands out the window. So how did this happen? Officers say they got a 911 call of a driver speeding down the highway waving a gun. So they pulled over Kamitra Barber's car thinking she was the suspect. In less than a minute, though, they realized they got the wrong car, but by that time, the kids were freaking out. 
It doesn't, you can't just say, okay, I'm sorry, and then I'm over it. I, I can't. I mean, every time I listen to or hear or think about it, 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 it bothers you. What's even more confusing about all this is Barbara drives a burgundy Nissan, and the 911 call said the suspect was in a tan Toyota, Uh-oh. making it even more unclear why police pulled her over. All these kinds of things, and then I'll be so And he went on to say that black men had no rights, which the white man was bound to respect. No rights, which the white man was bound to respect. No rights, which the white man was bound to respect. No rights, which the white man was bound to respect. Context of white supremacy. Justice Gus T. Renegade. In for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Monday, May 4th, 2015. So I have been told. We should be back later in the week. Uh, at minimum, we are starting brand new book study session this Friday, Asada Shakur, her autobiography. If folks want to get a physical copy of the book so that you can follow along, but we are getting started uh, this Friday. I thought that would be a nice follow-up. We just completed uh, the autobiography of Malcolm X. Uh, so now to go to Asada Shakur, uh, get some balance and to be moving forward chronologically. Uh, with regards to the timing uh, of these texts should be interesting uh, to see see where we pick up at uh, with her book. But that'll be this Friday, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific, uh, especially uh, if folks who have not read her autobiography yet with all of the conversation where her name has been coming up regularly uh, with the talks about uh, what they call renewing the relationship with Cuba. Uh, she has been referenced consistently uh, first female on the FBI's terrorist most wanted list. At any rate, that's coming up later in the week. Uh, program today, I uh, thought it would be great to uh, have one of our favorite guests back on to speak with us uh, with all of the upheaval in Baltimore, South Carolina, Israel right now, worldwide. Uh, so much attention uh, on racism. I uh, thought it would be great uh, to hear our guest today uh, once again, particularly since all of this started. Um, I guess if we were going to use a reference point with the shooting of Michael Brown Jr. in Ferguson in the summer of 2014. Uh, we had him on the program uh, in August, just a few weeks after all of that. We had him back uh, in December of 2014, just uh, a few weeks uh, after the uh, non-indictments for uh, Eric Garner, as well as uh, Michael Brown Jr., uh, Tamir Rice had happened uh, just a few weeks uh, before we had him back the last time to get uh, an updated assessment uh, of all of this, the media coverage, what does all of this mean to just try to make sense of it. Uh, so to now have him back uh, to get an additional assessment to both 
uh, get updates on uh, some of the more recent controversies, as well as uh, his ongoing analysis of, of what all of this means, where it's going, how do we get a better grasp of, of racism, white supremacy, so that we can do a better job of uh, solving this problem as soon as possible. Uh, our guest, you can check out some of his papers. They're linked uh, at his site on uh, academia.edu. Should be linked in the description for the program. I uh, would definitely uh, encourage folks to check out the work. You can always get new literature, particularly if you check the footnotes, new reading material and, and extra stuff. It will definitely uh, keep you busy if you're looking for uh, counter-racist homework. Uh, our guest is an associate professor in the Department of Philosophy at the University of Texas A&M. Uh, his work spans across the various fields of philosophy, jurisprudence, Africana studies, and gender studies. His primary research interests are in critical race theory and Africana philosophy. Always a pleasure to have him on the program joining us live. Our guest, Dr. Tommy Curry. Uh, Dr. Curry, are you with us, sir? Yes, sir, I am. Thanks again for the invitation. Pleasure is ours. Always glad when you can uh, spend a bit of your time with us. Uh, for listeners, this might be their first time hearing about your work. Uh, if you want to tell folks anything you think would be helpful for them to know about who you are, what you do before we get started. No, absolutely. Uh, my work primarily focuses on anti-black racism and violence. Uh, many of my publications deal with whether or not nonviolence actually works in a system of anti-black racism and white supremacy. This is largely building off of Derrick Bell's thesis of racial realism and his racism as permanent idea. Uh, the question I ask myself is how do we think of politics or liberation if racism is permanent? Many times we start with the assumption that racism is something that's dying, that's going out of vogue, that's weakening, that white supremacy is a decadent idea that has no relevance for us today. Uh, I take a different view of that. I think that racism and white supremacy are transformative, meaning that it's a dynamic ideology that influences both individual psychology and institutions. How do we adjust to the modernization and evolution of racism so that America maintains being an imperialistic and colonial or neocolonial power? Uh, from that, my work usually focuses on uh, political theory, uh, but recently, because I'm writing a book, I'm, I've also focused on the plight and ideas of black males throughout history as being victims of white patriarchy and violence. Outstanding. Outstanding. Uh, is it acceptable? Can we make a request? I know some of our listeners uh, have said from time to time that uh, they would appreciate if, if some of the guests, that they could uh, lower their vocabulary level to make sure folks aren't, aren't missing any of the important things that you're sharing. Is that oh, absolutely? Absolutely. Grand. We have a tendency to talk in jargon sometimes just because it, you know, cuts time out. But no, that's that's absolutely fair. Right on. Right on. Uh, I guess to, to start off, I know, well, I guess number one, <laughs> when you emailed, you were saying that uh, you're, uh, you are a, a parent, first and foremost, your children were a little yes. under the weather. I hope they are doing way better uh, on the road to a speedy uh, recovery. Um, no, thank you. Thank you. For sure. Um, we talked last time, we kind of started the conversation about some of the things that you and your wife as black mom, mm -hmm. black father, things that you do to equip your children so that they understand the world in which we live dominated by anti-black white supremacy mm -hmm. racism. Uh, since last we spoke December, have there been any, any significant milestones, uh, teachable moments as they say with your children and, and talking about any of the events that have happened? 
Well, you know, my little girls are, are two and four. So, you know, now is, you know, is really, I, I think I mentioned before, you know, now we're looking for positive psychological reinforcements, you know, stories that show black women uh, in positive roles, stories that, you know, show them because they both have natural hair that, you know, we have this book or they're called little power you know the afro power puffs you know that these are in fact you know beautiful things and they should be proud of them and we try to slowly uh teach them their hair to show them that you know give solidify a positive race consciousness and a positive black female race consciousness as well right that black women have a specific history etc uh we haven't really tried to socialize them to the things that have been going on in society uh you know my wife and i have talked about it but you know they're just too young i mean things violence scares them and you know we don't want to put them in the in the case where they're constantly anxious and and you know exhibit kind of paranoia as of yeah i don't think they're old enough for that but the thing is that we've had to talk about it you know my little girl starts school next year she'll be five uh, we're in a very conservative place in texas uh so the question becomes you know how do we how do we mediate you know the racist interactions that she's going to have how do we mediate uh teacher expectations stereotype and assumptions so these have all been part of our conversations but you know given that the literature changes and then you know as parents you have to kind of assimilate that and think about what's best for your kids you know it's 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 an ongoing process fantastic what is that book that you were talking about the uh afro pops what is it Oh, uh, I could get you the name of it. We ordered it for them. Uh, it's it's a story about uh, a little black girl who has magical powers because of her Afro buffs. Huh. I know we have some parents who would love, or aunts, uncles, whatever, who would love to uh, nab a copy of that for uh, some black children that they know of. Oh, no, yeah, I'd be happy to share that, yeah. Right on. And it's, about a, it's about a black female author, so, you know, I do the best I can to support our sisters when they're doing work for, you know, our, our young sisters, so. Ashe, Ashe, this black self-respect right there on display. Well, I mean, we 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 know, you know, this is one of the things that I think we miss is that, you know, and you know, and I think I've commented on this before, you know, with the gender politics of the academy is that we don't trust each other to be specialists on each other. You know, we we much rather listen to people who have a copyright of certain ideologies, like a black feminist or a liberal progressive or, you know, whoever else may be giving the, you know, invoke gender theory of the day instead of saying, look, is there a case that black women have had a certain history? A certain or certain experience of relating to these issues of marginalization that men haven't, and why wouldn't why wouldn't we look for them for their influence on how to teach little girls? If they've been dealing with this their whole life, then I think that a black woman writing a children's book about self esteem or why black women or black girls should feel beautiful about themselves matters. The same way that if a black man writes a book that's talking about the anxiety of black men dealing with death or dealing with violence, I think that matters. You know, these this is what I mean. We have to learn to trust our culture more. You know, and the way that we do that is we support each other, and then you know we purchase each other's publications and you know aesthetics, arts, you know things of that sort that are trying to you know help a new generation. Black self-respect. Black self-respect. I I can say just in that vein. I remember. I believe it was. Uh, the second time you were a guest on the program and you were saying in that vein uh, of trusting other black people um, that one of the things that we can do that will work against racism anytime we write to reference other black authors uh, to you know, quote them and what have you to get their expertise out there. And that's something that has really stuck with me every time, whether I'm writing something for myself or blogging somebody else, even if I'm doing descriptions for our program, I, I make a conscious, deliberate effort 
to source other black people. Uh, if I have to go to a mainstream source, I at least try to make sure that the author is a black person. Uh, and then I'm, I make an effort to go to independent uh, black news sites and what have you to really make sure that that's, that's something that I'm promoting on a regular basis. Uh, black people that are writing and writing accurately, not just because a black person, but that they're giving correct information. I, I really thought that that was an important suggestion. And I try to recommend that to other listeners as well. Um, yeah, right it's, um, it's vastly important. It's vastly important. Oh, and the name of that book is Penny and the Magic Power of Puffballs. <laughs> the Adventures of Penny and Her Magic Puffballs by Alonda Williams. Alonda Williams. Awesome. We will uh, yeah. even see if we can. Penny and the Magic Puffballs. Penny and the Magic Puffballs. Outstanding. Check that out. Parents, I know we have a lot of black parents listening. Alonda Williams. Outstanding. Mm-hmm. Outstanding. Um, given. Everything that has been happening, as I said, really all the way back to August uh, and rolling right on into uh, summer, which is around the corner. Um, I've heard a lot of talk, people saying that uh, this is the new movement. Matter of fact, that was the big piece uh, in the Times. Uh, they were talking about uh, D. Ray uh, McKinson. Uh, I think I might be botching his last name, but uh, they were talking about these two black activists that have been working really hard since the event in Ferguson and saying that they've kind of ushered in. Uh, this new age uh, of black activism around all of these different incidents. And I just was thinking of, I've been thinking about that for a while. Like what exactly does that mean Uh, that this is a quote unquote new movement? What does that mean? What does that, particularly what does that mean in the context of white supremacy? Um, Can you give your, your thoughts on that? Well, unfortunately, I don't think that it means much. Uh, I think it means that people have brought an ideology uh, what people have touted, you know, in terms of Black Lives movements of intersectionality to Black politics, um, rather than this being a success, I find this to be largely reactionary uh, to a narrative. So, you know, many of the people who are making this argument is that, oh, you know, this is not just about Black male death; this is about Black women death, like trans death, uh, you know, all every every identity you can imagine. Right. Um, the problem with that is that, you know, while that may be a nice catchphrase and that it resonates with academics it does not resonate with people black people from the working class who are largely marginalized and don't have access to academic language and theories to explain what their movements should look like because for them they experience the way very much the the, the world very much the way that you know uh the washington post's uh database uh sees it which is 304 black people being dead this in, in 2014, 12 of those black people being black women, women, and 292 of them being black men. So what we've done is we've created a lens. And this is not to dismiss the idea that black women are victims, right? That's not where I'm going with this. But this is to suggest that when you make a movement based on a type of theory which says we should be all-inclusive, that's fine. But if people experience the world where almost 300 black men are dying, and it's their sons, their husbands, etc., and the working class black people who are not fed these kind of representational theories are trying to activate themselves, are trying to protest, are trying to fight for all black people, they're not going to share the same idea and theory of that that academics do. So when we look at Black Lives Matter and we say, oh, here are the two figureheads of the movement, what we're really looking at is saying, here are the two spokespeople for how we understand the movement in this bourgeois academic class, and not how working class black people understand the movement. So a lot of those people that are 
marching for Eric Garner, that are marching for Rakia Boyd. These are people from their communities. These are working-class people who may not have had a graduate education, who may not care about intersectionality. The question that we have to ask ourselves is what are their energies? What's their consciousness of the world around them? And see, this is what I'm always suspicious of. I know every time I come on, I'm always talking about the academic class. But the reason I'm so suspicious of it is because when you look at social media, they dominate that space. Right? They dominate how the world interprets what's going on. Black people are rioting because they say there is a structural imposition of violence on them. So this is the time. Think of, I mean, I, I really think about this, Gus. Every time there's been a movement in this country, when has it been intersectional? So you think, think about the gay rights movement. The gay rights movement were based on people who identify with different sexual orientations. It was about their experience. It was about what they said is missing. Now we have a movement where we have working class, predominantly black boys and young men being shot, and we're trying to control the, the ethics of the discussion because we don't like the reality that's causing people to get upset. And look at the kind of disrespect that we have for our own people. We tell them, we, we, we enjoy the fact that you're rioting. We enjoy the energy. But at the same time, we come back and say that very same black community that's confronting cops, that's standing up to tear gas and pepper spray, we think you're pathological. Because the reason that you're not focused on these other bodies, like trans peoples and black women, is because fundamentally you're pathologically sexist. You see, and that's the problem, that we expect movements and we expect revolts and we expect revolution to move along the ethical theories that we've defined based on our ideologies that we've learned from universities, rather than understanding that the riot, the resistance, or the revolution may, in fact, be the contradiction and dismissal of everything we've learned in universities. Because as much as we've learned the theories and the jargons of intersectionality, as much as we learned the ideas of deconstruction, those things have not energized people to form social movements and resist cops the way that the death of these young black men and boys have and the effect that their deaths have had on families, have had on mothers, have had on sisters and other community organizations. Right? And that's, that's what we miss. So when I see things like that from Time or when I see that from Ebony, I really do see those as other attempts for certain groups of people to get a certain recognition for ideas. It's just like when they were trying to copyright the hashtag Black Lives Matter. I find these to be neoliberal or capitalistic ideas that I've created something or I've named something, so I need to make sure it's copyright. This is, this is, our, this is us absorbing the ideas of, of property, of intellectual property. This is not about us trying to spread consciousness to, to a whole mass of people. When, and, and you just said that these deaths, uh, Eric Garner, Eric Harris, these different incidents, Michael Brown, Tamir Rice, they have galvanized uh, poor black people, working class black people, quote unquote, to go out, up, confront racism, white supremacy, police terrorism. Um, you said a revolt. I think one of the terms that I've been uh, hearing used also a rebellion. Uh, I think right. I expressed on the program on Saturday, I am cautious uh, about referencing, and it's not just the situation in Baltimore is consistent for me. Uh, when I hear people talking about the uh, LA riots uh, after the beating of right, Rodney of King and no environment, yeah. they said uh, the, the LA rebellion, uh, Watts from the 60s calling this a rebellion. I'm hesitant because, number one, I've seen too many examples where white people 
instigate these incidents uh, where mm. they have paid people to go in and be disruptive and commit criminal acts oh, no, so that they can then, you know, just go ahead and say, oh, this is just lawless. These folks are not nonviolent protesters. They're just lawless criminals and, and thugs, the whole nine to discredit everything that they're doing. And even if I say this is legitimate, even if I discredit the first fact, which is important, and I say, okay, this is legitimate. These people are upset and they're striking back at the system of white supremacy. I haven't looked at any of these incidents and seen where there was like a major blow struck against the system, against white people, right? Where like white people were really damaged. White people were hurting, uh, either white loss of life, major loss of white property. I mean, just white people totally destroyed. Like I have not seen that after these incidents. Most of the time it ends up being black people who are hurt for the most parts living in these areas that just become spots of blight uh, for the next 50 years. Am I incorrect? Am I, am I not? Am I? No, no, no. I think you're, I think you're right. I think you're right. I mean, I've, I've probably, I've gone, you know, I've said this on Facebook and I actually I have a paper that I'm co-authoring uh, with Darius Hills on this issue. Like, I don't think that Black Lives Matter is revolutionary. Um, I think that the problem is, and, and I, I would I would be hesitant to call it a, a, a serious rebellion. I think that it's a riot or a social protest. And I think that those things can be contained. And it precisely can be contained because one of the weaknesses I see of the Black Lives Matters movement is that it's already dedicated itself to certain strategies like nonviolence uh, and try, in many ways try to distance itself from other things that have not uh, configured on its ideology. So if you're not intersectional, if you're not nonviolent, if you're not you know, peaceful X, Y, Z, um, these things largely fall outside of its purview, you know. Uh, and I think that that's a mistake. I think that when you draw lines around any kind of social protest or resistance, then that stops its evolution. Because, you know, this is just like when King was debating with Stokely Carmichael about including, you know, the deacons for defense and, uh, you know, and uh, core. You know, people have different views of how to deal with violence. And if you don't recognize that difference and become a type of movement that has an intellectual diversity of how things go, then ultimately your movement's going to fail because you're you're basically saying here's the population that could be in it and here's the population that can't. Uh, so yeah, I wouldn't I wouldn't say that it's a rebellion slash revolution in that sense. The other thing that I think is especially dangerous, and I was saying this on my Facebook page, is that look, you know, one of the we we get excited when we see the masses move. You know, then everybody's trying to become part of that, right? So, you know, uh, you see scholars who've never written on non, who've never written on violence or advocated violence, somehow now become excited, like, oh, this is the time for X, Y, and Z. And these become largely intellectual cliches that, oh, the masses are moved, so the scholars have to catch up with it. You know, you know, this is this is something that we have to understand X, Y, and Z. But the problem is that we don't understand the structures that motivate violence, and more importantly, we don't understand how white supremacy responds to these. So I think you're right. You put people in the crowd that are going to disrupt it. You're going to put people in the crowd that are going to, in many ways, bring out the law enforcement to tear it apart. Uh, you see, you see people taking pictures with the young man that they pepper sprayed on the ground. You know, this is this is what happens in these in these kinds of situations. Police and cities are built to contain riots. This is why I've argued that we need serious urban planners trying to talk to us about the layout of Baltimore and the layout of how different types of protests would work to distract different, you know, uh, auspices of the state. But we haven't seen that. What we see are the same talking points that get put on, like, well, what's going on? Why is this happening? But nobody's saying, well, look, how do we make this successful? How do we link up Baltimore, you know, Ferguson, et cetera, not just into separate protests? You know, I know Philly still with Baltimore. I saw pictures from that, from that protest. How do we make sure that these don't just become protests that last for a month or two months, but in fact become a 
countercultural revolt against the ideas and practices of white supremacy. And that's a much harder question. See, because when you get off the talking points, you can be wrong about that analysis. Nobody's wrong now because every pundit that come on t- comes on TV says these rides are justified. It's the same talking point. People are upset. People are dying. This is poverty. This is, you know, everybody's correcting that because you're just using fancy language to describe what's already going on. But what you don't have is how do you transform this into something that lasts so that the very way that we think about black people's lives, the very institutions we appeal to for law and safety, the very idea of the rule of law, the idea of justice and freedom, right? How do we change and get people in the public to understand that, to have a different consciousness of those ideas? And see, that's not what's being talked about, because then if you do that, people are going to disagree with you. If you do that, people have to put a foundational stake. Academics, too, middle-class, bourgeois, black people, too, have to put a stake in this. They don't just get to be observers that get to tell other people what's going on. And see, this is, this is that risk. Because, you know, people don't want to be wrong, especially in a time where we have so much, where we're, we're spectators on something that's so spectacular that everybody's just looking at the event unfold rather than asking, well, how do systems get broken down? Or, and this is the part that people aren't considering, how do systems respond even more virally, given that we're protesting and we're provoking the state to, in fact, act? Now, we may win that battle, but then again, history has shown we could also lose it context of white supremacy again dr tommy j curry uh going all the way back to one of the very first points that you made today uh, in terms of what you borrow uh from scholar Derek bell in terms of the the permanence of racism uh and i make a deliberate effort uh, as often as i can on this program to equate uh the permanence of racism with that means the eternal dedication that white people have to the practice of racism, meaning that white people are irredeemably committed to terrorizing black people in all areas of people activity. Uh, I, in my view, I, like you, I have not seen that analysis come through clearly. Uh, if anything, I would say that just that adds to my kind of skepticism. Well, really, I would say that I would say it this way. That adds to my understanding of how whites have done a masterful job managing everything that's happened over the past nine months or so and that that doesn't come through in the analysis. And in fact, I think white people have done a a very uh, skillful job uh, throughout the entirety of resisting that narrative directly and indirectly. They've had so many uh, victims of racism who said it's not about racism and there are tons of white people who've been out here protesting and they got the selfies to prove it. Um, And then they've had different (laughs) narratives uh, like this was in the Washington Post. This was uh, this past weekend. Uh, it's I, as a white mom of two black children, do not share Baltimore's pain. Instead, I grieve with you. And she writes, I'm not going to read the whole thing, just a quick paragraph. She says, what do I know of oppression? I am a white girl from Texas, your area, who has had every advantage skewed my way. But black community. I stand in solidarity with you, not just as a mom to two black children, but as a human being. I hear you and I believe you. I'm scrolling down a little bit in the article where she continues. I simply want you to know that one white upper middle class suburban woman hears and believes you. I do not share your collective pain, but I am grieved immeasurably by it and I am committed 
to racial reconciliation and reparations in my lifetime. <laughs> what is what is your response? There have been so many white protesters like this white mom of two black children. What is your response to so much white involvement uh, in all of this Black Lives Matter? I'll just say so, to be quite honest with you. I mean, you know, it's, it's funny because, you know, when when you think about white people's relationship, you know, to anti-black violence, it really does come with, a, it's, it's so mediated, right? So, you know, her she starts off saying, you know, as a white mother of two black children. So this already shows that the relationship she has to black people and the lives of black people are not fundamentally connected at the human level. Rather, it's through the medium of her children, which are two black people she cares about. And the problem I have with this is that this is what I mean when I say that there is, there is always this distortion of, of black life. So she doesn't, you know, I, I remember we had a, we had a, um, a panel here on Dear White People uh, a few months ago. And one of the women, one of the, a white woman said that, look, you know, I think the movie was great because, you know, it lets me talk to white people about racism. And I, you know, because I was one of the people on the panel, just like I think this is a terrible movie. Uh, I think that it's it's intellectually dishonest, and I think that it's politically deceive, you know, deceiving, and devious. Uh, but one of the things that you know, I said, I was like, look, you're telling me that Michael Brown gets shot in the head in broad daylight with no weapon. You've seen Tamir Rice, you see Trayvon Martin, you've seen you've seen Rakia Boyd, which is people were telling the whole story, which is which is even a more ridiculous display of violence against black people, because he was shooting at Antonio Cross, shot him in the wrist and accidentally shot her. So so this shows you that, that white people have no regard, right, for any black people that's in the, even in the vicinity of the people that they're shooting at. And none of these things spark conversations about racism. So as a white mother, you can see black people dying. You can see black men be still being hung in 2015, and that doesn't get you connected with why black people are marching in the streets. But your two black children, who you worry for because they're black, that does. You see, and that's the problem, is that even these accounts that come out to be liberal, you know, liberal articulations of, of care and humanity, etc., are really self-serving. The issue becomes, why is it that black people still in the 21st century, have to protest about what is supposed to be given to them as citizens in this country? Why is it that black men specifically have to fear that any interaction with the police or a pissed-off white person will lead to them being killed and then it being justified? So there's an anxiety that comes about from blackness that can't be remedied by a white person simply saying they sympathize with the conditions that have brought about these protests. Because that same white person didn't sympathize with the conditions before the protests happened. This is the new that black men get shot. It's not new that black women become victims of police brutality. It's not new that black people become incarcerated. These are relatively stable historical phenomena. This is what happens to black people in America. So the fact that you can't empathize with that or sympathize with that, it can only do, do it through two black bodies that you've selected, that you've picked out as being important out of the whole scheme of racialized people in the world, is in many ways just dishonest and incredibly naive and offensive. Because it suggests that the only black lives that do matter to these white people 
are the black lives that these black people have in connection to white people. It's the relationship white people form with black with certain black people. The lives lives to matter, not the fact that black people have a intrinsic worth themselves. You know. And again, this is what this is what our liberal progressive time celebrates. We celebrate the idea that white people can recognize us, that we can be somehow uh, understood by systems, even though our alleged goal is to overthrow overthrow those very same systems that demand this recognition. We want we the law always works to let people who kill us go, but we want recognition by the law. We 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 aim to problematize the way the media covers black death, but we appeal to the media. Right? These 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 things this is this is what I'm saying is that these are largely unformulated ideas and concepts and struggles that are in their nascent stage at best that we need to develop and understand that look, if this is a serious challenge about the law and the state, then that means that also we have to find a way to reconfigure or socially engineer the way that the law and the state respond to us. Now that, and like I said, those conversations become more difficult because you can actually be wrong on those. There are going to be a lot of different opinions and a lot of different ideas that are not going to conform to the way that we think about the world. If folks have questions for Dr. Curry, feel free, chime in. I'll give out the number uh, as we move forward. Um, just, again, ana analysis. I think that's important. Uh, that's something that I've encouraged uh, since all of this started uh, last August in terms of really kind of making a six months evaluation, one year evaluation of, of what's happened. Um, in my view, and I, I've kind of said this for some years now as well, I think if people are serious, racism is a problem. Many folks have said that over the past year or so yeah, and beyond. If you really get serious and say, OK, let's go about the business of solving this problem permanently. I think if you start out from the premise that somehow, some way, we can rehabilitate white people so that they won't practice racism. I think if you start out thinking that that's possible, you have a radically different framework, a radically different agenda about how you envision racism being disassembled, as opposed to if you start out with the premise that, hey, this is permanent. This is this is not possible. It is it is a lost cause divorcing whites from the business, the religion of white supremacy. And that's something, at least for me, I have not seen that in the past nine months. For the most part, I have not seen that as a part of the analysis. Is that is that critical? What are your thoughts on that? No, it, it is critical. But remember, the reason that you haven't seen that as part of the analysis is because you built a movement on the assumption that the recognition of different black bodies increases the, their democratic access to different institutions in society. You see, this is, this is exactly what I mean. We've bought into an ideology. Just think about this. So what does it mean? So you say you include black women, trans bodies, black men, et cetera, in a movement. The idea is the movement allows people in society to recognize the cause of these different people. So the idea is that you solve problems because if you include more of these bodies, you see that each body has a different relationship to violence, and we need to be aware of all of them. So you, you, in making certain arguments about this, you've already presupposed that democratic recognition or the politics of recognition or acknowledgement actually work, that people, once they know about problems, will seek to address these problems. Now, if you start with a different view, right, so that's the liberal progressive intersectional you know, feminist view, if you start with a different view, be one based in political economy, neoliberalism, uh, racial realism, which is Derek Bell's theory, then you're going to say, well, look, 
no matter how many people you include, at the end of the day, it's going to be the state's disposition and their economic profit or, or, or their, the, what they gain in terms of maintaining order and legitimacy from killing black folk. And if you read the failures of these types of appeals, such as the Zimmerman case, where white people funded George Zimmerman to get him off, right, or the Wilson case, where he became a millionaire for killing Michael Brown, Right, or even you know, serving you know, because we talked about Ricky Boyd. He was the first one of the first cops ever actually charged him getting off. All of this suggests to us that law works towards the ends of white supremacy. In other words, people with enough resources, public opinion can manipulate the way the jurors think so that they always let white people off or people who kill black people off. Now, if you take that stance, then you say, well, then what's the point of the movement? Because if the movement is only to get people's issues recognized so that they can go to courts, right? And you, but it, the, the race really says, well, you know the courts are always going to nullify. They're always going to, you know, they're going to let the white person go. Then you have to say, well, then why does the movement appeal to the courts and the institutions that the racial realists and the political economists and the, you know, the black radical tradition is saying are fixed from the jump? See, and that's what I mean when I say that we don't have, we have not developed a coherent analysis of what we're actually appealing towards. So let's say that you're right. What are we trying to do? So these six cops are getting charged, right? You know, Mosby is, char- is charging these six cops. So let's say we get convictions. Let's say they go to jail. What does that conviction mean? Did, can we recreate Baltimore with a black female attorney, right, or a prosecutor that's going to do that in every urban municipality? Is, is our hope that this one victory somehow brings back all 300 or bring some kind of reconciliation for the deaths of all the 300 people in 2014. You see, this is what I mean. What, like, we don't have an agenda that takes seriously how white supremacy influences and dictates the instrumental workings of these institutions. We have ideals and hopes based on an assumption that we're human beings and citizens in a country that, te- that treats us like anything but. And that's an that's intellectual failure. Right, and that's what I think makes these types of revolts or resistances and our you know pontifications about them uh, even more more scary is that we haven't gotten the picture, right? We we're reacting to a civil rights narrative, and and, and look how outdated we are. We're we're doing the same thing they did in the nineteen sixties and seventies as if those strategies are you know tried and true. But when historians are telling us that these things have failed, when people like, you know, Mary Dudziak and, you know, Bell and the late Du Bois are saying, look, these things largely failed. We're getting different kinds of arguments by Cobb, you know, who's saying, look, nonviolence was supplemented by armed resistance and violence. That's why the movement got anywhere. You know, we don't, we don't look at that. We just say, let's do the same thing. Let's think that a riot is going to change the world. Let's think that convictions are going to change the world. And that's not what we're dealing with. We're dealing with both the psychological disposition of whites who do get off, who have an eroticism or an erotics tied up in the killing of black people, specifically black men, that we don't want to talk about. We have the marginalizations of black women and black communities that people don't want to talk about, as if poverty and, you know, cutting these communities off from access of education, health care, social services is not a type of slow genocide. And then we have the ways that institutions fail to recognize black bodies. So when you have people that are actually in the courts and systems, lawyers, prosecutors saying that it's easy to deal with these riders, shoot them. So if you have all those death ideas, going towards black people, then I'm, I want to know how, how recognition uh, uh, alleviates that. 
And that, again, that's a conversation that we're not talking about. Nobody's going to get on MSNBC or CNN and say, hey, we're dealing with the, the, the predilection of a white race that is committed to black death and, in many ways, institutional genocide through incarceration and impoverishment of the black community. This is simply a symptom. Police brutality is not the core of the disease. It is a symptom of institutions that have been legitimated on the death of black people. So the same way that lynch people, lynch mobs and lynchers were involved with the police force, the idea was not that if you got rid of the police, lynch mobs would stop. It was that you live in a society where it's okay to kill black people, and the roles that people take on, such as being cops, allows them access to the people that they can lynch because people now say that Negro deserved it. So that cop participates in the extra-legal brutality that gives rise to his position. Because if you get to kill them, if black people are fearful, then it makes the job of the police much easier. Because your job is simply to maintain order, to enforce order. You don't have to recreate the whole system because the fear of the people, their need to be disciplined, their need to be killed, is already solidified in the minds of the population. And we miss that. We're appealing to the same systems, to the goodwill of institutions, to change things that have been historically solidified, not only in the minds, but in the practices of, of a white supremacist republic for, for centuries. Context of white supremacy. Um, speaking of being treated as less than a human, um, this just was published at Atlanta Black Star. Speaking of black journalism as well, uh, this was published at Atlanta Black Star, Mr. Nick Childs. Uh, beating sexual abuse of Illinois inmates detailed in lawsuit reveals torture black men subjected to in American prisons. I'm skipping down uh, midway through the report uh, mm-hmm. that as an example of the torture, the black inmates had to endure a strip search in front of female officers, touch their genitals and spread their buttocks and then use the same hand to open their mouths. They would also have to march from their housing units to the gym at the facility with their heads on the backs of the prisoners ahead of them in line so that one man's genitals were in direct contact with the next man's buttocks. If they broke the formation, they would be violently attacked by the guards according to the suit. The guards called this nuts to butts. What is that you I think you were just talking about sexual abuse, state sanctioned violence against black people, black males in particular? Look, this this one send me that article definitely because I, I wanna I wanna read it. But um here so here's the this is why this is funny. So, you know, you know, I'm writing this book, The Man Not. And the second chapter of this book is on uh Eldridge Cleaver's lost manuscript, The Book of Lives. Uh, it's something that I found uh, in some archives that has never been written about. People don't even know that this exists. And one of the things that Eldridge Cleaver points out about the prison industrial complex is that it's a hedonistic arena for white people's sexual pleasure. So what he says is that he, he says that, you know, white people know that if you put men together in a prison who have been oppressed and told that they cannot embody manhood because they can't have a white woman, then what you do is you create a sexual anxiety that tries to seek out the sexual domination of other men. And he says it's because of this homoerotic nature of the prison industrial complex that white people use black bodies for sexual entertainment. It's a type of pornography for them. 
So when you when you when you mention this story, you know, I think of all the cases of male on male rape. I think of all the cases of black men talking about domination and rape from the prison staff, including and this is the part that's that's the most disturbing, uh, including white female staff. Uh, there's a lot of law journals that are now talking about, and even studies. So the simple study that was talking uh, about uh, the rates of rape between men and women being being the same gets that because she includes the prison population, and that's of course you know dominated even the juvenile population dominated by young black and brown boys. So you have a history of this of this eroticism involved with black male bodies and brown bodies that never gets talked about in terms of uh, the academic discourse. When we think of incarceration, we think of it as simple violence, but there's a kind of sexualization that happens to black men, a, a kind of performance of homoeroticism that happens that's intimately tied up with how black bodies are treated, which is one of the reasons that this idea that black men can be raped, not only, you know, in jails, but now we know, you know, throughout history, you know, I, I think I mentioned before this is Thomas Foster's work, you know, that because black men have been raped by white men and white women, that this becomes an aspect of racialized violence. And it is, and Gus, I'll tell you that it is incredibly hard uh, to talk about this aspect of anti-blackness within the university, uh, because the minute that you talk about it, it implicates white men and white women in a way that is offensive to disciplines itself. In other words, because we've defined racism largely as a heteronormative project where men attack men, men white men rape white women, and white women largely become, you know, these passive, you know, background subjects, you know, we don't want to talk about the actions of sexuality towards male bodies. And then the story you read is a perfect example of that. And this is something that Cleaver understood. Cleaver understood that, look, if you put black men in a position where they're going to be dominated, they're dominated not because of their race, but because of their sex. It is white men's homoerotic fantasy. It's their attempt to overcome the savageness of, of the black male body that attracts them to them. And the thing about it, we accept this on a heteronormative basis. Right? We, we, we laugh at the idea that black athletes have white cheerleaders. We laugh at the idea that rich black men get white women. So we accept the same kind of eroticism or exoticism when we talk about white women's attractiveness to black men. But then we completely dismiss it because we don't think that homoeroticism or homosexuality have anything to do with racism when you talk about the relationship that the white male body has to black male bodies. You know, and this is this is why things like that at the prison happens. This is why the UN has report after report about prison rape in the United States and black men's victimization by giving the false the, the the numbers of exonerations and you know false convictions, but nobody wants to talk about it. And it's sad because this this is really us cutting down history to fit within certain disciplinary you know lenses, and that get pa that gets passed down into society because we're not educating children about slavery, including the rape of black men. We're not educating people or students about slavery, including you know the sexualization of black male bodies, and part and it's part of the reason of the castration during lynching. We simply hold on to these mythologies that are based in narrow heteronormative myths and disciplinary politics like feminism that are essentializing certain relationships between bodies and missing out on the terror that black men and boys uh, and black people generally experience at the hands of white supremacist institutions and peoples. <laughs> wow. Um, I'm deviating just for a moment because uh, I'm pretty sure I'm not going to lose my spot, but I'm, I'm mm -hmm. deviating because what you just said, it jogged my memory uh, when you were with us in 2014. Uh, you mentioned the book uh, Picking Cotton. 
which is about Ronald yeah. Cotton, this black male in North Carolina. He did, I think, about 11 years uh, in prison where a white woman uh, falsely picked him in a lineup and said that he had raped her. Uh, and he did 11 years before they got DNA evidence that uh, exonerated him. And keep in mind that FBI report that just came out about how they had been given bogus uh, information oh, yeah. on this hair to keep that in mind as well. But at any rate, I read that book about a month ago. Man, it is incredible. Like, uh, yeah. it, for just for listeners, it like alternates, right? So it goes like one chapter you hear from the white woman and she's given her details about the trial and blah, 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 and the night she was raped. And then the next chapter, it goes with Mr. Cotton and he talks about his experience through all of this with the night he was picked out of the lineup and his 11 years in prison. It, just to give you one quick, quick anecdote, his family, they, they're coming to visit him. He's been in prison, as I said, you know, closing in on a decade. They eventually even move him out of state. He's in prison in Tennessee, so he can't even see his family. So his family comes to visit him for Christmas and they end up arriving, I think, like 45 minutes late. And so the white guards don't allow them to see Mr. Cotton. And it takes a while for him to even figure this out. So he's stressed, wondering what's going on. He's all excited, blah, blah, blah. They brought all this food and nothing. I mean, it's just it's heart wrenching (laughs) reading this. But it was so revealing because there would be chapters and segments where she would be just talking about how she wishes death on him and his family. And, oh, I hate him. But even even when they find out that Mr. Cotton didn't rape her, they get the DNA results back. Her first response is, oh, my gosh, I need to get security. He's going to come kill me. He's going to be so mad. And his response is just, you know. I'm moving forward. I don't wish anything bad. I just want to move forward with my life and, you know, go, go do about my business. I don't have any, any ill will for her. It w- it was an amazing read for on so many levels and his quickness to forgive her. Um, just, just what you said sparked my memory. Do you have any, any thoughts or any, any profound things that you recall from the book? Well, I mean, I remember reading the book for, for the research I'm doing on this, on this book, actually, you know, which is the, you know, on black men and false accusations, et cetera. I was I was struck by the conversational tone of it, that that somehow it's okay. You see, this is the problem I have is that it it puts the burden on these black men who are exonerated to take the high road of forgiveness, and and that's the theme that runs through the whole book, and it's something that I was very very uncomfortable with, uh, because what 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 ends up happening is that you see an injustice for a false rape accusation, and inevitably people say, well, even though that's true. The the idea, the the most important thing is that, you know, we're prosecuting rape. But what we're not talking about is how rape has historically been used as a mechanism to oppress black men. So when we get these types of books, I think the problem is that it, it, lends, it lends to this narrative that there's not a sexual violence against black men. You see what I'm saying? That we can, that we can look at this, that we can say, hey... This happened, but it was a mistake, and both people grew from it, as if there's something to grow, like you can grow from time in prison. You know, and, and it's, just, it's infuriating, because there's so much denial about the specific sexual oppression that black men suffer at the hands of white women, both through rape and through, you know, uh, false incarceration, or, or false accusations and convictions, that, you know, there's no way that forgiveness should even be a part of that. You know, unless you're talking about it at the individual level, like how do they, you know, how do they deal with it? But you know, it's just like this situation with Glenn Ford. You know, and they did they did the uh, the video, and the guy, the DA put him in jail for 30 years, and he asked forgiveness, and the guy said no. 
And some people are like, wow, you know, this is this is spectacular. How did he say no to this? You, you, you're taking away black men's lives, poor working class black men's lives. And he ends up dying a few months later, you know, of cancer. So what is, like, what is, what does it mean to, to have a life lost? If your idea is that, well, as long as we protect the white woman, then everything becomes okay, then it's justifiable. There's no, there's, there's, no, there's no way that you can legitimize or justify that type of thing. And I think that, you know, picking cotton is an example of what happens when there, there's an attempt to reconcile this, and it ends up being the, the, the language of forgiveness without a real evaluation of what happens to other black men and other black boys who are falsely accused of rape and sexual assault. Even I think the title, at least for me, as I read it, I think the title says a lot. Uh, and then oh, yeah. you read the time. I mean, it's it is incredible. It is it is def- in my opinion, it's it is a fascinating counter racist study. If you want to check it out, picking cotton. Uh, as I said, I was not gonna- spectacular. It's it's really spectacular given given what he went through. You know, but you know, but but you know, because this is this is also part of our you know a part of our our, our sickness and symptom, right? There's reasons that certain ideas are not taught. Uh, to students and to universities and universities, and I and I and I always focus on that because you got to remember that everything that we're seeing happening today, when we look at MSNBC, when we look at the people who are the pundits, when we look at all the explanations of of what we're doing. These are largely public intellectuals who are trying to dictate the discourse of how the how the masses should understand the events that are unfolding before them. So even though people may agree with a black face saying fancy language on television. It is still a form of propaganda that tells people how they should interpret the world. An example of this, and, and you know, I was reading, um, I don't know the guy's name, I think it was Daryl Moore. He wrote a piece on, on Mike.com where he was saying that, you know, these movements are ignoring black women, right? And, you know, so I read his piece, and I was like, okay, well, yeah, you know, let's, let's, let's see what he has to say. And one of the things he, point, he pointed to was Kendra James. And, you know, for the life of me, I was like, that sounds familiar, but I don't know what this is. I clicked on the link. Kendra James was killed in Oregon in 2003. Now, one of the things that, that Daryl Moore said was that, well, we don't march for black women. And given that I do the research on all these different, you know, deaths, et cetera, I was like, well, that's not true, right? Black people, black people do march. NAACP does march, right? But what struck me was that, you know, the Kendra James murder was particularly funny because the very link that he had said, there was a march of 1,500 to 2,000 people, and that march lasted for several weeks. And result, and it was joined in by other people who had lost their sons, right? And it resulted in a change of police policy. So then I had to ask myself, well, this person claims that we don't march. And mind you, this death was over 10 years ago, okay? Doesn't march, yet this is, this is what people are saying. So I, I had to ask myself, well, then how does that not contradict you say that we don't march for them, but the link you shared says there was a march of 2,000 people. The marches that, you know, the first nights of, Chicago, of Baltimore and Chicago were listed around 2,000 or 3,000 people. So I'm, I'm curious to know what incentive we have in trying to direct the lens of interpretation. You see what I'm saying? Like, why do people, people are able to create what they want the public to see? And lots of us buy into this. I was arguing with a scholar. She was saying, well, look, you know, black women don't get attention. I was like, well, look. I don't think that that's completely the whole story. I think the issue is is that the black masses see this as a black male problem because of how black men are treated. And black women in these communities, these working class communities, see it the same way. 
and that's not to say that 12, you know, the 12 black women that was estimated, because that's, of course, not the whole number, right, because we don't know what's reported. But let's just assume that doesn't mean that the 12 lives of black women don't matter. But it just means that you're dealing with something that dramatically affects black men and boys. And how do you how do you situate or center their experiences, given that they're fearful that they're that the whole community is fearful for them? So that's what I mean is that we have to we have to just like the picking cotton, we have to be aware of what kinds of ideologies and propagandas are directing the ways that we interpret events that are happening to us and within our time itself. And that's not again that is definitely not part of the conversation. Nobody's nobody's coming on news and saying, look, let's be critical of this aspect. Let's situate this with facts. Let's situate with how this affects communities. Why are black women standing up for black men? Is it just because they're black men or because this, they're losing people who are close to them, fathers, sons, etc.? People are important to their communities and to their children's lives. None of that's part of the conversation. All we're looking at is this body does this, this body does that, this is this interest. And that, that's what I'm saying. These things are largely, largely figments of, you know, fictitious. They're the products of our imagination and certain types of ideologies. And these ideologies are not going to hold true given what's unfolding before us. Our notions of justice, our notion of law, our notion of civility, all these things are going to change if this actually does develop into a social movement, Right. And I, don't th- I honestly don't think that the masses, because we haven't been having a real conversation with them, or the academy, or the middle class is ready for that kind of reality, because they have a st- they have a stake in the system. If the uni- I mean, think about this: if the university said that we're going to threaten every black person with terrorism or treason because they're speaking in you know uh, speaking in support of an anti-governmental action, these people would shut up quickly, and that's the problem, right? That we, we speak because we're allowed to speak. We're speaking because we have structures that demand that we pay some attention so we struggle for relevance. And the sad part is that we do this all for recognition. Right? We want to be recognized as that social scholar. But then, you, like I always say, you look at these scholars, are they researching this? Are they staking their careers on this? Do they stake their career, their intellectual careers on black people? And the answer in most cases, of course, is going to be of course not. Because everybody knows that if you fundamentally write on black people, if you tie your research to the issues of the community, then you're going to be looked at as less of a scholar. Even other black studies departments in this country are going to hire you. Because black studies departments in this country have been largely motivated towards a post-structuralist and interpretive idea of blackness. They're not interested in how people are concretely researching Baltimore or Ferguson or what blackness means or white supremacy means or that all white people are racist. You get more, you get more recognition and accolades for saying that all men are rapists than you do for saying that white supremacy is a historical system of organization that distorts the way that we think of humanity. It's, it's just more in vogue. It's, it's okay to be against you know, certain aspects of gender. It's not okay to be against white people. And that's just the reality of it. So that's what directs these kinds of discourses. This is why there's a push by certain intellectuals to call the whole black community, men and women too, homophobic and sexist. That's why we get these analyses of Black Lives Matter that are focusing so much more on the gender question than on the class question. Because these are priorities that are set by institutions that have nothing to do with black people. And, you know, and it's a, it's, a, it's a sad aspect of it. So that's why questions like male-on-male rape, that's why questions of homoeroticism, that's why questions of, you know, exonerations and false convictions of black men don't really have traction within any of these conversations. Because the idea is decenter men, decenter blackness, make it about everything else, and then try to explain it and teach people that that's the way you should interpret these movements. Mm. 
Speaking of uh, homoeroticism, uh, I always uh, check the the footnotes when I read different reports uh, that you've authored. Mm -hmm. Uh, And even a lot of times just in in the course of uh, our conversations, you'll reference other books and what have you. So I get reading material. Uh, When I was reading one of your drafts, uh, you mentioned uh, the 2014 publication, The Delectable Negro, Human Consumption and Homoeroticism Within U.S. Slave Culture. And I said, wowee, this is fantastic. So I go, I check it out. And uh, this is on page uh, 177. Uh, They're referencing uh, William Styron, who is a white male Mm -hmm. who wrote about uh, Nat Turner uh, during the 1960s. Uh, So uh, the book reads, uh, Amid this national fervor, William Styron's novel and notoriety led to the resurrection of the most contentious and racially charged aspects of Nat Turner's legacy. In November of 1968, Styron received a letter from one Robert B. Franklin in Elkhart, Indiana, describing how he had come to possess Nat Turner's missing skull. I have in my possession a skull, he begins, which I believe to be that of Nat Turner. The skull was given to me by my father, who inherited it from his. My grandfather was a doctor who practiced in Richmond, Virginia, around the turn of the century. The skull was given to him by a female patient whose name is not known. She claimed to have gotten it from her father, who was a physician in attendance when Nat Turner was executed. Turner's missing skull had long been a sore spot for black people living in and outside of the Southampton, Virginia community. The beheading of Turner coincided with the boiling down of his flesh and the use of his skin parts to make the notorious money purse. Franklin's letter to Styron only confirmed long-standing black suspicions that white had, whites had literally and socially consumed Turner's body. Whether or not Franklin actually possessed Turner's skull, a fact that remains today unproven by medical science, his safeguarding of the skull and treating it like a cherished family heirloom demonstrates that well into the late 20th century, the possession of Turner's cannibalized body had social and historic significance for whites. Uh, I haven't read the whole book yet, but just flipping through it, man, I'm excited to dig in. What this oh, past, good. What is this what does this book reveal about white supremacy that we generally ignore or don't think about? Oh man. Uh it, <laughs> you know, I taught this in my grad course this semester in anti colonialism. So you know, we went through a pretty close reading of it. Uh, it, it, it reveals a few things. One, that African people were afraid of Europeans uh, as cannibals, and that cannibalism or what uh, Woodard talks about as a kind of parasitic relationship that whites had to the black body was very much a part of, of, of enslavement. Uh, that being said, Woodard also argues that one of the ways that um, this kind of parasitic relationship works is not only through physically eating black men, uh, which is which he demonstrates there with Nat Turner, but also through rape. And he says that, you know, one of the reasons he uses John Smith's or uh, James Smith's uh, autobiography, he goes back to Frederick Douglass's autobiography. He, of course, talk about, you know, talks about Linda Brent's scene where, you know, uh, the young black boy is chained to the bed of the master. He says that, look, all these are examples of how white men a white culture, white supremacy sought to consume black male bodies. And he says that one of the problems that we have, and you know, this is kind of his attack on uh, the, the present order of how we study racism and, and slavery, is that we can't imagine 
the relationship of white men as homosexuals. That there's a homosexuality that existed within slavery and within America that is never taken up. Because largely because we don't want to talk about anal penetration, uh, and the last few chapters talks about both the pleasure and the torture of that two black male bodies. You know, so it's a deep book. It's a very deep book, uh, and you know, but it's books like that that are trying to document this other kind of history uh, that really don't catch a lot of attention outside of queer queer studies, and I think that that's a mistake. So I can tell you that in my field of philosophy. Uh, people don't even read this stuff. Uh, you know, I mean, I'm still getting into arguments that if I talk about black men being raped and my actual convictions, because on my Facebook page, I post a lot of convictions of uh, white women and white men who raped uh, black men and boys. Uh, you know, people are saying, well, look, this is anti-woman. You know, they, they leak into some like men's rights or whatnot. You know, but this is a history. This is not a reaction of white, of, of black men saying we're losing privileges. They're like, this is a history of victimization. Black men have been raped as part of the institutions of Jim Crow slavery and American racism. Uh, but there's lots of pushback for this type of stuff, uh, largely because of heteronormativity and also because, you know, we have a certain kind of uh, feminist politics that doesn't want to move beyond the heteronormative mythology of sexual sexuality. Uh, so it makes it very difficult for these kinds of conversations to gain traction because even when you have an excellent work like, you know, Woodard's Delectable Negro or even Foster's work or, uh, you know, I mean, there's so many more. I mean, even when you, I mean, hell, you got Baldwin, you know, going to meet the man. Even when you read these kinds of texts, uh, people are not ready to make that part and parcel of the conversation, you know, and it's a reality. It's just histor it's historically true. These things did happen. The question is, how do we articulate them under theory, and how do we bring this to the explanation awareness of, of black people more generally? You know, this, these are one of the things that history's hidden. Nobody wants to see a white woman as a rapist, and nobody wants to think as, of white men as having homosexual urges towards black men. Yeah. It's, it's not popular. Do you, do you see these uh, patterns repeating, like right now, 2015, in terms of either the uh, literal or symbolic cannibalism of the black body? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I'll give you an example about this. Uh, so there was a case um, in Ohio uh, about Dion Payne. He was murdered by two white men. And this is very recent. This was, you know, this happened in 2000, August of 2014. He was raped and anally penetrated by these white men, and then he was killed and left dying at the steps of a, um, of a hospital. You know, they recently sentenced these people. They didn't charge them on rape. Uh, people started, you know, kind of a, a petition to get them charged on rape because he was a 16-year-old boy, uh, and nobody wanted to do it. So, I mean, and you see this all the time with Stop and Frisk. You see this with uh, just the brutality. I mean, like Darren Manny. He was the, the young boy during Stop and Frisk where he had his uh, testicles ruptured. Uh, they later found a blood clot. In. Like, so this happens all the time. Like, this isn't just a historical phenomenon. But, again, we don't talk about it. You know, it's like Eric Glover being... Uh, they killed those two boys up in Joliet. I think that I mentioned this before, and and not not one blog wrote about it. Even these blogs, you know, saying that they're dedicated to race and gender and feminism and all this other stuff, didn't pick it up because it was two black male bodies. And you know, and I was just furious about it because I was like, you see, there's all these claims of erasure. Black people, black people generally don't care about black women. Black people don't care about any of these other things. They don't care about sex. But then it clearly shows that there's a blind side to how black people are being victimized in a variety of sexual ways with a variety of erotics and desires of white people being played out on their bodies and these things are just ignored because they're they're inconvenient for the theories that these blogs etc represent 
And I'm saying we need to move beyond all this. We have a historical record where white men rape black women. We have a record where black men rape black women. We have a record of black women raping black men and boys. Right? That's what happens in the real world. We need to start having conversations that address all of that and not trying to read the world through one narrow lens that says that it's only this or only that. So in 2015, where you have black men still being lynched, where you still have black men's organs being taken out of their bodies, where you have black men being raped and killed, 16-year-old boys raped and killed and castrated, then I think we need to have a new conversation. I think perhaps, just perhaps, homoeroticism and the sexual lure of the black male body becomes relevant to how these black men and boys are being mutilated. But, you know, that's just me. That would be, uh, that would include Donald Sterling as well. Uh, I know I remember when all of that came out uh, in 2014 that uh, it had years prior to, not in, not just his uh, court case with the housing discrimination, but that he had been making uh, homoerotic comments in the locker room of the Clippers uh, about these black bodies uh, and how uh, delectable they looked. I'm paraphrasing, but I mean, this was widely reported. Uh, ESPN and several other outlets that he was making these sort of comments years before we got to uh, the uh, the audio recording in Vistaviano. But uh, absolutely, I think that's something folks should consider. And uh, hopefully we will be uh, discussing uh, that book down the road, The Delectable Negro, Human Consumption. Oh, yeah, it's a great book, man. It's a great book. Put it you on. Know, I'm, I'm sorry. Oh, well, go ahead. Go ahead. No, no, it's, I mean, you know, it's a great book. I mean, one of the things that my work tries to do is, you know, and I, I, this is one of the reasons that I think that it's both popular and unpopular and infamous and famous in certain circles as well, is that I don't hold one theory to be true all the time, right? Like, so I'm a critical race theorist. I have a certain view of how I read racism, but I also look at anti-colonial thought. So, you know, I'm, I'm very much indebted to people like Sylvia Winters, Fanon, uh, to certain, certain aspects of Lewis Gordon's work, et cetera. So it doesn't. It means it means that when I do research, I don't get a predetermined result. Now, there are lots of times I do research and I think one thing, but then I do research and it's like, oh, well, that's just not true, you know. And I don't think that that's the way that academic research and liberal arts works anymore. People are not. People are writing what they want things to be onto different texts. So you know, like it's like when I wrote the paper on the Wiz, I found out that a black man had tried it out. You know, the a guy who was a radio show host. Harper, you know, started up with the idea, tried it out in New Jersey and Baltimore before they brought it to Holly, you know, to, to the big stage in New York. I found all this stuff out. So this completely changes the way that I have to interpret the text, that I interpret the play, you know. And the, uh, so this is how research should be done on black people. We shouldn't keep imposing these pre-configured ideologies and notions of nonviolence or democracy or peaceful solutions on these groups of people. We have to actually go in, so like Baltimore, what is motivating people in Baltimore? What is the social economic position? They are saying that this is because of Freddie Gray. What does Freddie Gray represent to them? See, these are the types of questions that we need to know before we start talking about what these people aim for. Because people in Baltimore are going to be very different than black people in Ferguson. They're going to have the same symbols, but they don't have the same ideas. Their notions of justice are going to be different. Their activists are going to be different. Their notions of what, what kinds of violence that they're worried about are going to be different. Their economic situation may be different. Right? All this changes. But we have absolutely no information on that as of yet to base any notion of what's driving, motivating, or, or creating the ideals these people are striving for, you know, in this kind of riot. You know? And that's, that's what I mean. We, we rush everybody who's a public intellectual rushes as soon as something happens to say, here's my theory of it. 
instead of saying, well, here's what I've learned from it, and here's a theory that I think explains it. And those are two vastly different approaches in how we understand black people. That is the difference between the black scholar and the black public intellectual. The black scholar attempts to learn from what black people throughout the world are doing, how that influences how we think about black people and white supremacy. The public intellectual just says, here's my thoughts of it. It's a kind of black impressionism. I don't really know anything about it specifically. I know none of the sociological, historical, economic factors in it, but here's my impressions because I woke up today and I'm going to tell you what I think about it. Two vastly different ideas. Only one of them truly addresses white supremacy. The other tries to be compensated by it. I'll let the audience figure out which. The number to dial for folks who have questions for Dr. Tommy J. Curry, 760-569-7676. And the code is 564-943-POUND. Press star six if you have questions for Dr. Tommy Curry. That number again, 760 760- Five six nine seven six seven six, and the code is five six four nine four three pound. Press star six if you have questions for Dr. Curry. Um, you mentioned the film. Uh, last question I'll get in before I get some of the callers. Uh, you mentioned the film Dear White People, uh, super popular, talked about weekly basis uh, throughout 2014, got a big review in the New York Times. Uh, I was able to see the film earlier this month. Uh, I just I told people that I thought the last seven minutes of the film, that, in my opinion, is the most important part that really gets to the core of what that film is all about and, and where I would go with a lot of my critiques. Uh, I think you said, if I recall, that that you felt it was not intellectually honest and you it didn't sound like you were a fan uh, of the work. If you had to give your synopsis and, and what you perceive to be incorrect about the film, what would you say? I would say all of it's incorrect. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> you know, it's it's you see, this is the thing. it's a post-racial film dressed up as a critical commentary about blackness, which is not. It's it's a biracial it's a biracial black woman who at the end disowns all racial signification and calls herself an anarchist that's utilizing racial pressures to expose what she's claiming is white racism and I guess black people's interest at different levels of that racism. And I'm just you know, I'm looking at this film like well who made her God or the chess master so that she could position black bodies how she wants. You know what I mean? And then at the end of the film, and this the, the most insulting part is, you know, so the black, the radical black people walk by her when she's holding hands with the white boy, and they're looking like, wait, what is this about? But her relationship with the white boy is then based on her relationship with her white father, which is unresolved throughout the movie, right? So if you look at this film then, it also articulates that the power of whiteness, even when it's just a half-whiteness, is to direct black bodies towards certain political ends. She gets to create the mess at the party. She gets to put people on blast. She gets to, she gets to decide how these things are going to be interpreted. At the end of the day, she decides, well, race is not that important. I'm a person, and I'm going to be with the white man who has the most critical view and lens in the, in the, whole, in the whole project, in the whole film. So every other black person, the black student president, he's doing it because he wants to live up to his dad. 
is there wants to be a white man who's been having who's who's internalized the idea of racism to such an extent that he still works for him though he's competing against him even though he's smarter and he recognizes this the black son doesn't like this he tries to go against it you have the black guy you know um what about chris you know, dealing with issues of sexual identification and his own fear of black people, which is why his hair keeps growing out. Like, come on, man. Like, is that, is, do we really believe that the idea of black people is so alienated from itself, that it's so pathologically distanced from itself, that everything is only about our identity, that everything's just about how we identify, or identify ourselves to white people so that we get somewhere? And if, we, and if that's true, if, that's what, if we truly believe that, they were in much deeper trouble than we than we can even believe, because I can't believe that black people become so dictated and determined by these types of things that they can't have a reflective moment in the whole film and do something different. But the biracial white person can. So whiteness in that film is the power to reason. It's the power to reflect and change. Whereas every other black person in the film becomes simply the static object that gets to be manipulated by the power that by the power and the faculty of the person of the of the biracial black woman that can change as she will. And that's a problem for me. Yeah, I was I was supremely suspicious of that film as soon as I saw the attention it got at Sundance. Uh Last year, and then, as I said, it got a huge positive review in the New York Times, and it was white people couldn't find enough accolades uh, for this film. That immediately had had me suspicious, and then once I actually was able to uh, see the film, all of my suspicions uh, were confirmed. <laughs> um, uh, as I said, that, that the scene that you mentioned uh, for folks who uh, have not seen the film, this uh, non-white female with a white parent, like the uh, the climax of the film. She disses the black people that she's been protesting with to literally walk off into the sunset holding hands with this white man uh, that she's in a sexual arrangement with. And uh, it's like she gives a it's a double entendre. She apologizes to him and symbolically her white father at the same time for being yeah. like a, a rowdy Negro. And she'll get her act together and stop associating with these other Negroes and, and be a well-behaved uh, non-white female with a white pa- I mean it's man <laughs> I can see why white people would love a project like that um, well yeah because it's because the, the one thing that stays stable in the whole thing is whiteness right absolutely. I mean think about the very end of the film when the black guy says he wants to do a, re- a reality show right about the college right and a black guy was like he stood on integrity no we can't do it da, da, da. what did white guy say yeah we'll do it so the whole film shows you that whiteness dictates everything. The reason that the black girl, you know, gets the blonde hair and goes to the white boy's party, whiteness. The reason the black dude wants to be accepted, white. Like, whiteness is the background of everything. The only difference is she, because she's half white, gets to mediate that world. So black people get to feel a certain way. White people in the film still have all the power. That's not, that's not a, that's not a success story. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> and then she ends up with the white man who's the, who is historically the most powerful being within these structures and gets to call it love. That's not a success story. It's like scandal. Like, it's not, it's not, it's, you don't win because you get to be the Jezebel or sexual object of the white man. That's not a reformulation. That's you saying that there's pride to be had in being the sexual object of a white man. There's nothing critical about that. You know? Exactly. But, you know, we dress it up with all this language and somehow it becomes special. 
<laughs> exactly. I, I said I felt like I've seen this ending quite a few times where there's racial strife and everything is taken care of by some quote unquote interracial relationship by the the time the credits hit the screen, like this is the same ending in Soul Man that came out in the eighties with Ray Don Chong, same ending pretty much for Monsters Ball, where Halle Berry and uh, Billy Bob Thornton are out eating ice cream on the porch together. Like I've I've seen this a lot. That if we just get in bed together, that'll fix everything, and we'll be moving forward, and white power will have been uh, corrected somehow. Um, some of the folks who uh, dialed in who might have a question. Uh, let's see. Uh, Thomas in New York, I see your hand. Did you have a question for Dr. Tommy J. Curry? Your line should be open. Thomas in New York, are you with us, sir? I'm not sure if you uh, have your line muted. I'm sorry? Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Oh. I'm sorry, I was trying to figure out <laughs> how to get off from you. How are you, sir? How are you, Dr. Curry? Good, sir. Good. You're coming to the top of the list. Of course, went to your webpage today, and um, I saw that you were um, you were a biomedic ethics investigational treatment and ethics pain and suffering. You teach yes. that in your as a part of your class. And um, oh, by the way, um, Gus, how are you, sir? I know you're going to say right poorly. And I saw all the listeners, I'm sorry. Um, Gus posted a report last week um, explaining how uh, Freddie Gray's um, demise might have started way before his um, untimely death with, with you, you know, having his back and severed. And they posted a report showing how um, his family sued and won um, against the city of Baltimore and um, how lead poisoning. Uh, has um, five effects on, in particular, black men, um, causing them to become violent. And um, I believe the the numbers they quoted they're six times more likely to drop out of school and seven times more likely to end up in juvenile detention right. um, situations. So, uh, of course, that leads to prison, you know, once they didn't get into the adult, you know, what, what it turns into. But, you know, just using common sense, I can figure they'll probably end up in prison. So, well, in the science that you're, you're, that you're in as a school, the, the ethics, pain, and suffering, the biomedic, um, the, the, can you explain anything about lead poisoning and the effects on black children? Well, I, have a, I don't study like, the diagnosis of those types of things specifically, but what I can tell you is that uh, in the work that I'm doing, I'm trying to show that health, specifically mental health, and racism are definitely linked. Uh, one of the things that happened is, so if you talk about lead poison, if you talk about the effects on poverty, uh, black people psychologically, uh, if you talk about how many black men, specifically because they're working class and they do a disproportionate amount of blue-collar labor. So black men work about 60 to 70%, or 67% of black men work in blue-collar jobs, whereas most black women, of course, you know, work in white-collar jobs. Um, you know, this means that there's a different kind of stress physically on black men, torn rotator cuffs, arthritis, back pain. You know, herniated disc, these types of things. And black men have to suffer from that. So what I argue is that racism has a lot to do with how we approach the idea of pain for these populations. Many times these black people don't get access to cutting-edge treatment. They certainly don't get access to medical innovation. So the difference of that would be something like you put them on, you know, Tylenol or give them a strong, you know, ibuprofen versus giving them something like platelet-rich plasma or stem cells to actually heal them. 
poor populations, black populations don't get access to that kind of technology. White middle class people do. White upper class people do. So it means that under racism, the class dynamic is emphasized differently because black people, specifically black men, suffer more. They suffer more physically from pain. And that means that even in something like Freddie Gray, what we're not talking about in terms of racism is how did the environmental conditions he was around condition him so that his body was weaker, so he had different health status, and that he was not an optimal, able-bodied person, right? Like we focus, that's what I'm saying. We focus on the spectacular aspects. They severed his spine, this act of violence. But we don't understand that many of these populations are being engineered for a very slow death and neglect, and that's because we don't focus on health. We only focus on politics. So I try to, I try to make a more comprehensive type of conversation in my work. Um, another question for you. Um, you said that you also deal with anti-blackness, and I consider anti-blackness down on different levels. Mm-hmm. Um, but in my opinion, the uh, the black people knowing and willfully working for the system against other blacks, like um, cops, politicians, civil rights activists, mm-hmm. you named some of the intellectuals earlier. I think that should be under constant attack by the black blacks who understand that they're working against the blacks so the rest of the people know, listen, don't listen to this person. This person, you know, they, they're, they're not talking for our interest. They're talking for the white person that's paying them to talk, you know? I oh, just want to know how you talk about that because Gus is, you know, he's totally he's talking about black people. And I'm like, you know, in some cases I think there's an alternative. I do get it, but, you know, I think that when I see, um, Three cops in this case, you know, once again, black cops. I mean, how could y'all, y'all took a job knowing that you're going to be arresting black people, um, sending them away to jail? You knew that before you signed up for that job. Everyone knows that that's what you do when you're a cop. I mean, to me, that definitely against the people. That um, What do you think about that? No, I agree with you. Uh, one of the arguments that I make in my work is that one of the reasons that people problematized the black power movement so much was not simply because of the idea of the black macho, right? So that's Michelle Wallace's idea that she later retracts in the introduction for the 1999 version of it that, you know, black power felt because it was horribly sexist. Um, it didn't fall, fell also always or didn't solely fall from that idea, uh, if any. One of the things it, it fell for was, one, because of the CIA and FBI trying to destroy it, and two, it problematized the interest and the ideas of the black bourgeois as being counter-revolutionary to the interest of black people. So you can see this even in like people like Elaine Brown's work, an early Angela Davis's work, where they're constantly trying to show you that, look, not all black people have black liberation as a foundational interest. Your class status matters. Your religious status matters. And see, today that conversation is completely gone. So what we've done is we've we've dismissed one of the movements that have pointed out to us that black people can be fundamentally aligned with the white power structure, and we've demonized it as being fundamentally decadent and sexist. And then we've come back because that voice is no longer there and said that all theories that black people hold or all positions that black people hold are fundamentally good. See, and this is this is so even some of the criticisms I've made about feminism and people like Condoleezza Rice or people with or certain types of neoliberal black women in the academy, just like I've made of certain capitalistic black men in the academy, falls along this line. That there's a class dynamic where these people are socialized into maintaining their economic and political interests next to white people rather than destroying the institutions that are hurting other working class black people. 
And if we don't get mm-hmm. that point, if we don't get that some black people are married to the system, something that we find not only in people like W.B. Du Bois and Frantz Fanon, but also even in the work of Martin Luther King, who's claiming that other black people are too reformist, are too passive to actually engage in revolution of values. Black people have known that these people have existed throughout time. We even make fun of it. We know these black people, you know, uh, existed during slavery. But somehow in the 21st century, we act like we can't have a sustained criticism uh, based on political economics and, you know, kind of the psychology of certain classes of black folk. And that's a mistake. So I think... Well, what I think do you these... think we should do to those people, though? What, what, what do you think would be a, a, a way to, to counteract, knowing that these people are working against us? They have no way... They're there because they're black, but they're not there to help black people. What can what can we do? You know, I mean, because I'm trying to figure that out myself. You know, well, one is we don't um, trust them. I mean, like, I mean, in a very practical sense. Let's not give legitimacy to them. I think what black people generally do is they try to make the best out of every situation. So just because there's a black face there, we say, well, maybe they'll come around. We see people doing this largely with Obama during the first uh, the, the first term, definitely in the beginning of the second term. Mm-hmm. Well, he's constrained. He's this and that. Even though black people are going down economically, we're losing out on jobs, unemployment, you know, is, is through the roof. We're still saying we're having hope. That's not the way to do things. We have to criticize people who are not showing actions that benefit benefit the group as a whole. The second thing we need to do is not vote for those people. It may just be the case that a liberal white person or Asian person or Latino person is in the better best interest of, a, of black people than a black person is. So we have to have more issue-based voting behaviors. And the third thing is, is that we need to put up our own candidates. So we, we largely listen to people that are given to us. We look at MSNBC, when you look at CNN, we largely support and repeat the articulations of black people given to us. Very little of our discussion is based on us petitioning programs to put on people that represent our interests. And this is a huge issue. Right, I would, you know, because we have black Twitter and all this other stuff, but who do those people, because they're kind of a semi-academic crowd, who do those people reiterate, right? So black people want other people that are the opinion makers and policy makers of us, we have to petition, we have to boycott, we have to criticize people for not giving us those, giving us those types of people. And that's the lack of activism, I think, on the working class part about this notion of propaganda. We're very good at talking about what's wrong with systems, but we're not proactive in, re- in addressing issues of propaganda and how these other black people work because they gain favor with white people. And then, like I said, we get into the thing of the calculus of, well, do we support them because they're black or not, right? We have to change that calculus. And I think, that's, I think those are concrete instances. We're not going to win every time, but those are concrete you know, instances where we can definitely do some damage to the public profile, the intellectual profile, and the overall acceptance and awareness people have of, of black voices. Oh, well, thank you very much, sir. And I'll meet my line. Thanks, Gus, for taking my call. I appreciate it, sir. Thank you. The person that dialed in last four digits... Seven five three seven, seven five three seven. Do you have a question for Dr. Curry? Caller at seven five three seven, seven five three seven. Did you have a question? Hmm. Might just uh, be listening. Not sure if you're in a loud place. I'll check. Uh, we'll check. Take a different caller, and then I'll. I'm sorry. You heard? Oh yes, sir. We can hear you. Yeah, I'm sorry, my phone was on mute. Uh, uh, A couple of days ago, I posted on your wall, Gus, an article that was discussing, uh, I'm sorry, first of all, greetings, everybody. I agree, sir. Uh, 
I posted an article on the Walgus uh, that that was talking about uh, how the word female should not be used because it's demeaning as opposed to woman. I think. Hello. Are you there, sir? We're not hearing you. Is your line drop or maybe you bumped your mute button? Hmm. It looks like he... Yes, I'm, oh. can you hear me? Yes, we can hear you now. Yes, yes. Okay, I'm sorry about that. Uh, I was saying that uh, I think I posted something on your Twitter desk that was talking about uh, how the words women and female sh- uh, were used and how the word female should not be used as opposed to woman. And because we, uh, it's been discussed on this program how Black men and black uh, black males, black females are men and women because of how they function within the context of white supremacy. I, I want to get your thoughts, Curry, about how the word "female" is used, um, and whether whether or not that's correct. Because in the article, it just, it said that um, referring to a uh, referring to a female as a female, as opposed to a woman it's reducing her just down to her reproductive organs as opposed to recognizing her as her, as a fully functioning woman. And I wanted to get yeah. your thoughts on that. Well, I mean, look, I mean, historically, I mean, I read, I read similar pieces to that. I, I think I actually saw that post. Like historically black people didn't have genders. They were just sex by that. They were just referred to as male and female. There were no men. There were no women. There were no ladies. There were no gentlemen. That's, that's just, that's how it evolved in the 19th century. So I think the idea of saying that, you know, you shouldn't call, you know, a woman or a black woman of just females uh, really does return to kind of that sentiment that you're only identifying them based on their sex and not based on them as a full person or as, you know, an adult that somehow you're, you're losing the ontogeny. You're, you're losing the development of them from child to, you know, a full-grown uh, reasoning, uh, functioning woman. Um, I think amongst some groups that's going to have some play. I mean, for me, I, I, I don't find that to be very relevant the same way. I think it's insulting in the sense that it becomes a racial caricature of the de-development or undevelopment of, the, of black peoples. But So I react to it the same way that I react to someone saying black men are boys. But if you're if you're talking about if you're talking about that as a historical issue, fine, I agree. If you're trying to police the black community because they're you know because this is how they address each other, I'm you know I'm just I'm not as married to that. I don't think that it represents the same thing because black people call each other you know uh, niggas. They call you know uh, their homegirls bitches. That's that's the working class culture. So if we go in there and come in with this this moral morally stringent rule then I, I just see us as policing them. I, I find that to be culturally imposing, not liberating. Now, may there be something to be said about how people define themselves and how they take on white supremacist notions of doing so? Absolutely. But there's nothing that shows that us calling a black, black woman a woman, which was something that was historically denied to her and based on the idea of Western gender taxonomies, is any more liberating than being designated by sex. So if we're going to truly be honest and criticize female, then we should criticize womanhood too. 
but we're certainly not interested in that project because most of the people that are doing this are be bourgeois intellectuals and have a stake in being known as a woman or, you know, any other kind of or lady or whatever the, the phrase of the, of the day is, uh, and not the, and not the whole picture. So to me, it's an articulation of an identity politics that's not the full story. And that's why I say that, look, you know, we can make any kind of politics we want and make arguments or rationalizations for them. But the question is, at the end of the day, how does it truly affect black people? Is it is it really the case that female is a biologically reductive term that only relates people to their sex organs? And it's like, okay, well, fine. But then, what does womanhood do, right? Like, why is that, why is that the preferred term? And what what values do we have to buy into such that we make people women, uh, such that they're not girls or children? Or what's that relationship to man? There's all kind of questions there that don't don't just revolve around one's absolutely true and the other's not. So. Yes, and I have one more question. And uh, is, um, but did you see that article? I have not read the full thing, but I did see it. Yes, sir. Okay. Uh, and um, one more question. Um, earlier, with the uh, previous caller, you, uh, Dr. Curry, you mentioned that with the health uh, aspects of uh, black men and black. Uh, males and black females um, dying and how that's not being talked about. We, uh, previously, there was a guest on the program that talked about the various health uh, uh, problems that uh, black people face, and she made the comment that uh, the, all, the, all the people that we see on the news being killed by the police and all that, that is a distraction. That was the word that she used, as opposed to the uh, the black people being killed by the tens of thousands in hospitals and various other health uh, facilities because uh, we don't talk about those. And I just wanted to uh, get your thoughts on that as well. Well, you know, like I said, you know, in the previous uh, to the previous caller, I think they're part and parcel, right? I mean, and, and I think she's right. Um, it was it was a female scholar, a black woman scholar. Hello. Yes, I, I think she uh, was a uh, she was a former doctor. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So I mean, look, I think she's right. Um, I think that I think the real issue is is how do we how do look? I think the the problem is, is that when we frame issues of racism, we do so only with the political in mind. What black person is getting killed? Okay. What we don't talk about is how does poverty kill? How does lack of health services kill? How does neglect kill? How does depression kill, right? See, racism is much bigger than our hashtag logics. So it's bigger than recognize me. It's bigger than black women's lives matter, black men's lives matter. Right? These, these, are, these are distractions because they tell us that we should be focusing and fighting about who gets media attention for victims. So in a certain sense, I agree with her that, yes, these are distractions. They're part, they're part and parcel of the problem, but they're distractions because they're not showing people that the larger problem of racism is a systemic problem that affects all avenues of black life. So when a black person doesn't have the money to get treatment or when a black person gets Tylenol to treat, you know, pain and they're actually suffering from, like, hernias or tumors, that's all racism. It expresses itself by a certain class bias, but it's about how you treat black bodies. So when, when people are saying, like, you know, people are getting shot in the street, you know, those are 300 people. Right, and those are 300 people that we can track being killed by police. That number pales in comparison to the thousands that are being killed by poverty and 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 the neglect of our access to health care. See, so so if you don't know that, 
right? Then you then you end up fighting about, you know, does 292 outweigh 12, right? And this is this, you have to think this is what we've been fighting about, right? And when we look at CNN and MSNBC, they're focusing on what do these marches and riots mean? We're fighting about cop cars being smashed and things like that. But we're not looking at black communities. We're not looking at how many black people suffer from mental illness. We're not looking at, you know, the types of the, the, the situations where some black women are killing their children because of depression and postpartum and, and mental health issues. We're, you know, none of this concerns us because that's not sexy, right? That's not what sells. You showing poor black people suffering and hurting each other because they're, they're completely demoralized and, and, they, and they're suffering from self-hate. None of that sells. But, you know, you put a cop on TV shooting somebody and breaking their spine, well, that's spectacle. That's provocative. My argument is that all these things are interconnected. This is, you know, my work I'm calling this internalized vulnerability. It's the ways in which black communities internalize between themselves the types of violent rage that white communities demonstrate to us in society. In other words, we learn racism. Not only the sense that we learn self-hate, but we learn the behaviors of how you treat black bodies in this society. Until we start having that conversation, then I think the doctor is going to be right that, you know, these things are going to serve as distractions because it's telling us that there's one type of violence and the others are not as brutal or don't matter just as much. All right, thank you. No, thank you. Thank you. Appreciate the call. Uh, person, last four digits, 7947, 7947. Did you have a question for Dr. Curry? Your line should be open. Yes, I Your volume got really low. I could hear you at first and then. Ma'am, your volume is very low. I'm, I'm uh, muting you just because it's very hard for me to hear you. Uh, it's like your volume got very, very low. Um, you were you were OK at first and then I don't know. I don't know if something happened. So uh, I'm going to unmute you again. Uh, let's see if your volume is better. Okay, 7947. Go ahead. Can you hear me? Yes, yes much yes, better. Ma'am. Much better. Is that better? Yes, ma'am. Okay, good evening, Doctor. You blanked out again. That was my fault. We, you're the, you should be with us. Okay. Can you hear me? Yes, ma'am. Let's try okay. one more time. All right, <laughs> good there evening, we go. Dr. Carey. Good evening, guests and listeners. A real quick question, two questions for you. Yes, ma'am. First of all, I'd like to know, with respect to homophobia, we were talking mm-hmm. about that earlier among slaves. Are there any books written about that that we know of? Homophobia in the black community? No, no. And as far as slavery was concerned, white, white supremacy over homophobia as far as black slaves were concerned. Oh, yes. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's, I know of two specifically that I've been drawn from. but um, And I can certainly share those with Gus. One's the delectable Negro. There's another one. Uh, there's two or three articles that I've been drawing from about uh, homoeroticism and slave culture that have been pretty useful as well. Okay. The only reason why I asked of that is because I always wondered, you know, they had so much domination. I know they were raping the black men as well as the, the you know, the, the women. You know, they talk about the women rape, but they it's not like overblown with respect to the, the black men being raped. Also, it seems to me, but this whole movement of self, the marriage, uh, same-sex marriage and things of that nature, it seems like it's really like, I don't know, 
to me, like white dominated. I live here in the New Jersey, New York area. And every week I look in the New York Times and I see these two white men, you know, they have their pictures in the paper. And I, I believe truly that there are more white males who are homophobic than we think we've been in the closet, who wants that freedom of letting people know that I have the power, white supremacy power, and also I want you to respect me as a homosexual too. You know, because I don't really think this is ever a black movement. Uh, you know, I think they're jumping on the bandwagon, uh, reaping some of the rewards. But I think if it had been a black movement starting this, I, I, I think it would have never got, got off the ground. I'm no, I think I think you're certainly right. I mean, there's been lots of people of color who have made arguments about uh, the queer movement uh, being dominated by white males uh, and white females to a certain extent. I mean, you saw a lot of this even in the 1960s and 70s. Um, you know, with some of the radical lesbian, les radical feminist ideas, you know, where black women simply didn't agree with some of the arguments they made. I mean, one of the biggest things was uh, the Scum Manifesto, of course, you know, that, that, that relationship to men was just not part and parcel of the black cultural pattern. Uh, the idea there was that you kill all men, use them only for reproduction, and, and pretty much, you know, push uh, self -love, female self-love or, or, you know, homosexuality. Uh, so I think that historically, you know, lots of these movements have been dominated by white people uh, because they've had the resources and the economic status to do so. Uh, on the other hand, uh, I think that there is a there is an a ignorance and a sliding of same-sex relationships and multiple sexualities in the black community. So I think that you know, black communities always get pegged, and specifically black men, which is I find really interesting. You know, I think black communities get pegged as being immensely homophobic compared to the rest of the country, which is anything but true. And secondly, that when they get pegged, they say that it's black men who are the homophobes within this community. And, you know, research has shown that, you know, generally speaking, black men uh, articulate and rationalize their homophobia based on religion. Um, black women do it from different articulations of traditional gender roles, religion, and even class status. So homophobia is a problem in our communities, but it's no bigger problem than it is anywhere in the nation. In other words, black people aren't going around arguing against black, uh, white people's rights in an organized political union because they don't have the power. They don't have the power to argue for their own rights on that level, right? But it's a scapegoat. It's a, it's a way of saying that, look, these black people, because they're backwards, because they're unprogressive, you know, become pathologized. So, I mean, yeah, to a certain extent, I agree with you. I mean, I think that the face that we have of same-sex relationships in America, um, homosexuality, polyamory, et cetera, alternative lifestyles, is immensely white. And I think that when we insert black people on, into that, we do it just like integrationism. We don't recognize that historically black people have been homosexual, heterosexual, polyamorous, you know, whatever you want to call it, but, you know, that these are largely... Uh, things that black people do in fat, and, you know, I, th I think that's just historically dishonest. So, you know, I, I pretty much agree with your statement. Our, the caller who asked that question, I think she dropped off the line. Uh, okay. She dialed back in. She can press star six. But to her uh, point uh, about the different, I guess, literature that she could check out on this subject matter. Uh, I think one of the reports mm -hmm. that you reference regularly, uh, The Sexual Abuse of Black Men Under American Slavery uh, by uh, Thomas yeah, Foster. Yeah, Foster's piece. Mm -hmm. That mm -hmm. one, great one. Uh, you can get it. Uh, if you check online, uh, Thomas Foster at DePaul, it has the listing, uh, the journal that it's in, and all the information so you can get it. Uh, you sh can even access it online. Uh, and then uh, one of the texts that uh, I referenced on this subject matter, I think she was talking about uh, homosexuality, uh, and racism, uh, the book 
uh, Colonialism and Homosexuality by Robert Aldrich. Uh, he's in Australia. I've been trying to get him on the program for uh, a few years now. Um, <laughs> it's a, it is a very interesting book. Uh, that's, I think is one of the first books right. that I saw uh, that was talking about this, this concept of white people being able to come in and specifically sexually exploit uh, dark males uh, throughout mm-hmm. the empire of white supremacy. But those are two you can check out uh, on the subject matter. Uh, Father folks, if you uh, the person that called in, Knocked it out before I even got it. Four three seven six four three seven six. If you had a question for uh, Doctor Curry, your line should be open. Four three seven six. Hello. Yes. Um, I was calling. I had a question about. The, um, your volume is kind of low as well. If you could speak up, please. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, I was calling about the uh, comment that you guys made about the homosexuality. When do you guys think that the white supremacists put into act to um, help manipulate the minds of the blacks to accepting the homosexuality? So, like, when do I think that whites program black people with homosexuality? Yeah, when when do you think that it, like, really just, like, kicked off to where it got to where it is today? You think that happened maybe 60s? 70s, 80s, 90s, maybe? Yeah, I don't, I mean, I don't know. I don't, I don't think that homosexuality are, I don't think that any sexualities are kind of programmed, right? I think that, I think that if you look at history, you look at different civilizations, be it Greek culture, Japanese culture, Asian cultures, you know, even though we look at the Koma Sutra, there, there are all types of sexualities that different groups of people have had. I think the problem is, is that because we've, been enslaved within a puritanical and Victorian system, British system, those kinds of moralities about the narrowness of sexuality kind of became our norm. So rather than us see, I mean, it's, it's just like how we deal with polyamory or polygamy here. So, you know, we don't think of polygamy or polyamory as being a, a system where you can marry multiple women or men or love multiple women or men. We think of it as something that's, you know, aberrational, like you're only supposed to be one person. We don't see that as, that, what I'm arguing is that that's cultural, right? That's not natural, it's just cultural. So there's no, there's no exhaustion for the number of types of erotic relationships any culture can have. So in that sense, I would disagree in the idea that white people put homosexuality in black people's minds. I would th- I do agree that there's an articulation of sexuality generally, be it homosexuality or, or heterosexuality, that's been programmed as kind of the cultural norm, that one stands in opposition to the other. And from that relationship, that's where we define all sexuality. And I think that's fundamentally incorrect. History shown that people, you, there's been two men loving one woman, there's been two, one man with two or three women. You know, there's all kinds of relationships and sexual practices that exist throughout the world. Uh, I just think that the West is extremely narrow on that. And I think that the kinds of issues that we see and the kind of anxiety that we have in the black community comes from these unknown historical facts and also our victimization. So I think that there's a discussion or there's not a discussion about the victimization of black men sexually that brings about cultural anxiety. The way that we deal with this is we say, don't let people take your manhood. Don't let people rape you. Don't let X, Y, and Z happen to you. But that's because we've, we've cultivated a cultural fear in it one that's largely unexplained and un, uninvestigated. 
Whereas what we should be doing is talking about all these things. And, you know, a person could be heterosexual, homosexual, polyamorous, etc. But, you know, we shouldn't, no label or sexual identity should be taken on because of the impression of fear or anxiety it causes within the culture. Okay. That was your only question, ma'am? Yes, it does. Oh, right on. No, thank you, ma'am. Uh, the person that called in from a blocked number, uh, did you have a question for Dr. Curry, person from a blocked number? Um, yeah. Hi, Dr. Curry. Hi, um, how are you? I'm, hi, fine, thanks. How are you? I'm good, I'm good. That's good. Um, I wanted, wanted to know your take on um, the the black woman that um, beat her son up, you know, when he was out, you know, protesting. Yes. With the other young people, and the, the fact that you know she was really proud of it, and she took the, they took the picture with Anderson Cooper, and her son was like pulling away in the picture, and she was all on all the talk shows, like you know she was really proud and everything. And people were saying that you know that was really terrible the way she, what she did to him, and I, I felt that same way. What, 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 how do you feel about that? Okay, I can say I certainly wasn't impressed with it. Um... I think I think that one of the issues that we have in this country, and I, I think this this goes all the way through, is how we treat black male bodies, uh, especially in relationship to violence. And you know, it's, it amazes me, you know, because I've been seeing people throw these memes around between Peterson and Ray Rice and this and this woman. And what what I've always been amazed with is that there seems to be a level where. If black men do something, we think at all levels that violence is the appropriate response for their punishment. Uh, you know, we see, we see, like in this case, she disagreed with her son's choices. She didn't engage him. She she became a caring mother simply because she was beating the hell out of him in front of people. Um, but we couldn't accept the same thing from, like, you know, Adrian Peterson, who could say that I didn't want my son to be a thief, so I whipped him so he wouldn't be that, or what he did was wrong and it could develop something else. We don't see that same ethic of care. So I think that there's a lot of things that go into how we read different bodies and violence um, that are just beyond, that are beyond her just hitting him. Uh, I don't think that black men are seen as uh, as providers of care or concern. I think for them... Every violence is meant to hurt. Every violence is meant to kill or maim. And I think that that's why you had this reaction uh, to people like Peterson. Uh, even in a world like, you know, with Ray Rice, where, you know, I was one of the people saying, look, we need to address the bidirectionality of this. She hit him. They're both drunk. He hit her. She became, you know, it escalated where she became the, the more hurt party. Uh, these are this is symptomatic of how domestic abuse happens in our communities. That you know men are largely attacked sometimes. Uh, that poverty, drugs, alcoholism, etc., contribute to the escalation of the issue, and black women become hurt because of that escalation. You know we we have a very dishonest and gendered biased way of reading situations. Because I guarantee you that was a black father that did the same thing as black daughter. He would have been brought up on charges. They would not have called him a concerned parent. Uh, just like the the father who who spanked his uh, daughter uh, for twerking or making the video, or the you know they they have these floating around. You know none of these things are seen as as par- par- good parenting. Every time we see those things, it's black men are attacking black women. They're abusive. We need to do something about child abuse. In this situation, uh, this woman's hitting, et cetera, and that's not part of the conversation. She was allegedly trying to save his life. So, I mean, I just, I, I can't, I can't get down with that. I, I don't think that you should 
attack any child that way. Uh, I think if that if you're a concerned parent and you knew that was your child, then you pull your child to the side. It's like, look, you know, you're not going to do this. There's no, there's what's I don't understand the need for this type of thing. I really don't. And I know other people disagree and people think that she's a national hero. I, I don't understand what's achieved in a world where you're protesting violence against black people, where you say, oh, but here's here's good violence, right? I don't I don't I don't understand that. I think it's a yeah. double standard. I, I don't think he's old enough to understand reason. And if you if he dis, if he's old enough to understand reason and he articulates why he's doing it, and you disagree. Then what what's the need for you to push to push violence on him? And if for, and the problem is that then for white people to see and then see this is what it creates it creates this binary where it's okay for black women to hit black children specifically black men as discipline but it's not okay for black men to do it right so even an older person that that for most most cases uh, you know I think he's an older teenager right he's like 17 or so yeah, 16 17 17 yeah. right yeah practically of legal age you know to make his own decisions you know he's treated as an adult in a year but you you treat him like a child and people enjoy that but the minute that, I mean, even when these other people have disciplined their children, people who are like six, seven, eight, we say this is unfathomable, right? So these, these types of things are strange. And I think that the reason that you see the reward of it is precisely because it indulges in what people like to see, the castration, emasculation, and violence towards black men. Uh, they, they tolerate violence. They enjoy violence against black males. Uh, yeah. And this, I'm, not, I'm not impressed with this hiding behind a care ethic. She cared about him so much she beat the hell out of him, out of him on national TV. And if it was truly a care, I think, why would you go on television and then, you know, enjoy the enjoy the acclaim that you're getting for it? It's one thing to say, look, I discipline my child. I was worried about his safety. Why take the celebrity that follows from it? Like, what does that get you? Right? It makes him. He looks like a fool. He clearly he's clearly not enjoying it. He's embarrassed by it. Uh-huh. So what is it? So what what's the real interest in it? You know, these yeah. these things are troubling to me. Yeah, I was I was really angry when I saw that, but I know there was a lot of people on Facebook that were, you know, that they wanted to argue. Well, she was saving his life, you know. She doesn't. She didn't want him to be another Freddie Gray, which didn't even make any sense. It's almost like she was blaming Freddie Gray for, for his own, you know, murder. Right. And like he, who? He, like who's gonna be Freddie? Like he, if he walks on the street, he could be Freddie Gray. Right. You know, I mean, but see, that's what I'm, this is what I'm saying about the context of how we misunderstand our own racial oppression. The argument is not that Freddie Gray did something. The argument is that Freddie Gray did nothing and was treated that way. So how does beating somebody because he's protesting prevent him from being Freddie Gray or Michael Brown, for instance? Mm-hmm. Like, any, any interaction with the cop could kill him. So what's the argument? Never go on the street? Don't walk anywhere? Right? This is, see, this is what I mean. We, we hide the systemic issues of anti-black violence behind different things. And one of the things that we hide them behind is these, these kind of respectability ideas, these ideas that being a good mother means beating the hell out of a black man so this black man doesn't do X, right? But that's not safety. If you want safety, then challenge the systems that do that to black men, that make it a crime for them to drive or walk down the street while being black and male. Don't beat the hell out of somebody that says, look, I'm challenging this. You may disagree with me, but I'm going to challenge the system. I mean, I, I don't see that as being useful. I don't either. Uh, can I ask you just one more question? Uh, I want to ask you um, how you felt about the, uh, you probably saw the picture of, a, uh, I think, the 16-year-old, uh, 17-year-old boy that took the the um, the police cone, uh, or the one of the orange cones off the street, and he bashed a police um, window in on a car. And um, his, uh, his, well, his stepfather 
was the one that decided that he should turn himself in and he would go with him. So his mother, she, she, I think she kind of reluctantly agreed. So his stepfather took him, you know, to the police station because the stepfather said he didn't, they, he didn't want the police to be, you know, bum rushing, you know, into their home, you know, looking for the boy because you know the stepfather wasn't going to put up with that. So when they took took the boy to the police station, they set the boy's bond at five hundred thousand. Well, I think it was five hundred thousand dollars more than those those cops that murdered that boy, and yeah, they said, and since he, yeah, and they said he was going to get life. I think he had had a few misdemeanor uh, uh, crimes uh, when he was younger, but he was going to get life. And I saw a video on Facebook where his mother, you know, she didn't, you know, she was she was angry, you know, but it seemed like the stepfather was the one that 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 ran the show. And I was wondering I wonder how that stepfather and his stepson got along. And I wonder if that was the step, stepfather's way of trying to get the boy out of the way or something. I don't know, maybe I'm just I mean, reading. Yeah, I don't well no, we never know anything about the intent, but I mean for God's sakes, right? I mean Yeah. <laughs> you know, and, the way and I feel was, um, I was just going to say, the way I feel, I don't care if they do bum rush into my house. I'm not going to give my child up, you know. Well, see, but, I, I mean, but this is what I mean. I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I, I understand. No, it's fine. Go ahead. It's fine. Oh, yeah, I apologize. But, but what I was going to say is that, look, um, you know, this is what I mean, right? Like, if so you're having a riot, and then the first thing you do is you, you say, okay, we're we're protesting the system, but you did something out of the norm. So, look, we're going to turn you into the system? But this, right. that's what I'm saying. This doesn't make sense. Mm-hmm. If if the argument is that the system does not work, that the system is unjustly targeting black lives, and you do something to challenge that, be it breaking a car window, whatever the case may be, and then you have somebody, you know, say, okay, well, you did something illegal. Go turn yourself into the system that you're protesting. I don't see that as being smart. I don't I either. Just don't. Yeah. And that's but this is the problem. This is what I mean when I say that this is not and this, this that more than anything proves my point that. We have people at the top telling us how we interpret the situation. You have disjointed values motivating the situation, and you don't have an articulation of an organized program of values that are supposed that are going to direct the situation and all the people participating share. That's the problem, and that's a clear example of that. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you for answering my question. No, thank you so much for the question. Ma'am. Okay. Sure. Good night. Of white supremacy. Again, if folks uh, have any questions before Dr. Curry uh, exits, you should get your hand up uh, immediately. Uh, do not wait till the last second. Um, I did want to ask, we had students on from the uh, University of California, Berkeley. Uh, they had been doing protesting on campus uh, about some of the various incidents that have been happening, as well as specific issues on campus uh, where black students' needs are being met. And they presented a list of demands. One of their demands was for uh, black psychologists uh, and resources, mental health resources for black students on predominantly white campuses, specifically at Berkeley, uh, and saying that because of racism, uh, black students are under so much strain and it would be beneficial uh, to have counseling options, black counseling options, uh, where you could talk about racism and how it's impacting you and, and impacting your mental health specifically. Uh, just wanted your thoughts on, you know, what you think about making that type of resource available on uh, college campuses. No, look, I absolutely agree. I think, I think most, most, um, I guess the best way to go about that would to be to give people that are doing black psychology 
not just general psychologists who are black, but people who understand specific issues of black psychological makeup, issues of black identity, be it uh, racial salience models or crossing aggressions that read through that, as well as some black community psychologists, people who could understand the different stress factors of the environment. Uh, now, I think black mental health uh, uh, practitioners, uh, clinicians, and psychologists are immensely important to any notion we have of black liberation. Uh, I also think that we need black social workers uh, to start mediating more of our, our relationships between people. Uh, again, this is, you know, I think you can hear this. Like, you know, my frustration with, even though I'm an academic, my frustration is that we have explanations that are being passed down to the black public that are purely ideological and have nothing to do with reality. Uh, so I think that anytime you get clinicians there who are interested in working with black people at the ground level or what their different types of pathologies, psychoses, stress issues may be, that's always positive, providing you have the right people. Um, us just retreating to ideology and talking about identity ID all day, that's not positive. That does nothing for anybody but ourselves. Right. Uh, the person that dialed in, uh, last four digits, is 0533. 0533, did you have a question for Dr. Curry? Your line should be open. Uh, thank you. Hello, Dr. Curry? Yes, sir. Yes. How you doing? I'm good. Um, I'm, I'm good. How are you? I, 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 pretty good. I, I wanted to know uh, your thoughts on, um, um, as far as like looking into the future, uh, maybe not really a blueprint, but um, just, just some ideas of thoughts around, one, how many, how many cycles? do you think of this we're going to go through? I mean, we're coming out of slavery. We're still in bondage, basically, but to do you see us going through this maybe another 1,000 years, another 5,000 years, and at some oh, point wow, man. Us, as a, us as a collective will move out or some sort of, you know, the system itself, you know, white supremacy was dissolved, and mm -hmm. then we have to make decisions at that point. Are we going to have to separate, you know, some blacks, other blacks with like minds and, and kind of push out and you know, obviously fight the system or whatever, to sort of, um, just to start making some space at some point. And I'm basing it kind of off of what, we just, what you were just speaking of as far as some of the things that we're doing uh, or individuals are doing sort of doesn't make a lot of sense, but clearly we're yeah. victimized. So, um, I mean, to some degree it should be expected. But I just wanted to know your thoughts on that. Well, look, you know, the problem is is that when we, when we deal with issues, um, when we deal with issues of race or racism, uh, you know, when we look at history, we don't see resolution. So, I mean, if you think about colonial histories of Britain, if you think about just how colonialism works generally, I mean, groups of people go out of existence. And I think the problem with us is that we think we think somehow this is kind of a final step, that this is the, the platform that racial justice is fought, fought upon within this system, within this government, within this system of economics. And I think that's silly. Right, because I mean, I mean, just think about this. Black people in slavery thought that the end of slavery was the new world. Black people out of Reconstruction thought that that was the Gilded Age was the new world. Then Jim Crow happened. People out of Jim Crow thought desegregation was the new world. Then that right, like that's that's that shows us that there is a dynamics of white supremacy that keeps inserting itself. So I think for us to have this idea that there's going to be a, an ending cycle to what we're dealing with is, is naive. I think that it, given that we're the population that keeps, you know, constantly finds itself on the bottom, even with a black president, I think we have to make some very real realizations about how colonization, neo-slavery, and anti-black racism work. So, 
I mean, honestly, these things end when whole geographies fall, when governments fall, when, you know, that, that's what changes the overall structure of society. It does not happen from people asking for peaceful incorporation within a republic. Okay. Okay. Can I ask one, one more real quick question? Sure. It's probably a little, it's going to be a little bit out there, but if you entertain it for just maybe a few minutes, you don't mind. Have, should we... Um, should we continue to procreate? And I'm sure people have asked that question before, but I wonder sometimes, should we keep producing labor for these people? And I know that's kind of crazy sounding, but just... No, I know you no, said, actually, the boys asked oh. the same question. Okay. Um, you know, it's there, there's two things that are there, right? So we know that black people are exploited uh, within the system, and so that's one thing that, you know, inevitably we produce more black bodies to be victimized and to be exploited as well. And there's the issue of do we want the race, the people, the culture to survive? Uh, one is a necessary evil of the other. If we want our people, our heritage to survive, then we need biological bodies which, you know, propagate and contain those types of ideas. Uh, but that, that comes at a cost. So I think that given that populations and people do endure, regardless of their conditions, that black people shouldn't stop procreating. Um, but it does raise an ethical question that should you create more black bodies in an unjust world? And, I mean, I think that that becomes people's personal consideration. I mean, I think history has shown that people, groups of people tend to reproduce regardless. But the question is what's the state of them as they reproduce? What I mean by that is if you create a group of people that want to escape blackness, then inevitably the kind of self-defeatism and hate that you get from being part of that primary group uh, is almost unsurpassed. Uh, this is why people lighten themselves, straighten their hair, thought they had to speak English, take on Christianity, wanted to be capitalist, wanted to leave the communities they're from. That's why those types of things happen. Um, on the other hand, if you think that, given those conditions, one of the best ways to respond is to have strong black communities that know about history, that have their own kind of black studies that's empirically driven by a love and understanding of black people's condition, then you see black people's reproduction is necessary to that. So it, de it depends on which way you see things. Thank you. No, no problem. Question as well, caller. Uh, let's see. The person who dialed in, I think, well, last four digits, 1664, 1664. Did you have a question for Dr. Curry? Um, yes. Uh, thank you for the show, Gus, and good evening to all the callers. And, and welcome back, Dr. Curry. Thank you, ma'am. Um. Just my, what I've seen here in Texas, they say give me a child until the age of six and I will, you know, change him for the, how he'll be the rest of his life. I don't, and given that the Head Start program is the only program they never cut, I really, I just tell people try to see if you can keep your children from having white teachers until they're about seven. Oh. So. Yeah, that's me. And then second, even though I hate to think about the vulnerability of black males, you know, the 11-year-old that, that I take care of, you have, even though I just hate to even think about it, I know that next weekend we're just going to have to do role play so that he will be, he will be as safe as I can make him because he's 11 now. Thank you. So, um... And then the other thing, you know, I, I keep hearing people talking about and talking about, you know, how do you see white people? How do you see white people? I mean, do you think that they're going to, you know, change or get better or mutate or whatever? 
but no one, no one ever talks about um, how do we see ourselves. I mean, I know there are some people, some scholars out there, they talk about that a lot. But it never seems to be as much in the front of how we treat ourselves because I, I, do, you, do, you ever, do you ever teach on that? I mean, how I black do. people see themselves? I do. I do. And this is, see, this is what's so interesting. This is one of the things that I'm, I'm vastly uh, interested in, right? You know, people, <laughs> it's amazing, it's amazing you ask this question. So, you know, a few days ago I had this, I had this discussion with a colleague where, you know, she was saying that, you know, she thought that me focusing on black men being victims of rape and races, uh, of rape and, you know, throughout history and even contemporarily was anti-female, Right. And what I was trying to explain is that, look, you know, one, I don't even mention anything about women, but two, this is a question of how black people understand themselves, right? Like, you know, one, you know, people usually focus on things like, well, you know, he's anti-feminist, he's this, he's that. But the point is, why is it that we only constrain ourselves to certain ideologies of knowledge? So history, history has will continue, like, we'll be historical figures. You know, black people and black cons existed forever. So why do we see ourselves as these very narrow, fixed 20th and 21st century relics of, of political ideologies that we weren't even born when they came about, but feel that we need to embody now? Why do we hold on to notions of identity that are based on whether or not white people like or dislike us outside of us being motivated by capitalist gain? Like these, nobody questions these. We just assume that it's natural. If you're radical, nobody's going to employ you. Don't do that if you want to make money. If you kiss white people's ass and you're liberal and you're feminist, progressive, etc., then you can make money. And this drives the way that we see ourselves. So this bothers me, though, because I have to think, well, what do black people think about poor working class black people with no education? See, this is why I'm always harping on the class dynamic. Right? What do what do some of these elite black feminists really think about these poor working class black men? If they think that they're black machos, then that means that they're laying rapists. They want to dominate people. Do you fully sympathize or empathize with people that you believe are that? If you're from an upper class, if you're liberal, do you truly empathize with black people who reject education, who are purely based in their neighborhoods, who may have criminal records, who, who may choose to drink or smoke on the weekend, who are not Christian, right? There's all these other perceptions that cut across our ideologies that nobody wants to ask us about or even interrogate because we don't want to believe that other black people harbor fundamentally anti-black racism, stere- racism and racial stereotypes against black people. And what I'm constantly pointing out to people is that, yes, we do. And the reason we do is because we learn not only this from our society, but it becomes part of our identity. It's how we identify ourselves. And until we start having that conversation of transforming what blackness is, and and more importantly, stop making blackness dependent on the recognition of whites, then we're going to continue to have these kind of class bifurcations. And again, those are things that people don't want to talk about. No, they don't. Thank you. No, thank you. I have to give you a heads up. the largest special ops exercise in U.S. history is coming to Texas. It's going to start on July 15th. It will be in College Station where you are. It will be coordinated by the Department of Defense, Homeland Security, the FBI, DEA, and it will include the um, Green Berets, the U.S. Navy SEALs, the U.S. Air Force, Special Operations Command, the U.S. Marine Corps, and the Marine Expeditionary Units and the 82nd Airborne. 
Um, they want to be able to see if they can have increased military presence um, and the forces can move around in civilian populations without being noticed. But at times they may or may not carry weapons. This exercise is going to go on for several weeks. And I just thought you, maybe you should know about that. And you can I'll read about that it. in the Waller Times. Okay? The Waller Times. Yeah, thank you. Okay. Uh, the person that dialed in, 5044, five, five, zero, four, four, five, zero, four, four. did you have a question for Dr. Curry? Hello. Um, I'm calling in from Norway. Oh. Can you hear uh, me? Yes, I can. Oh, thank you for your work, Dr. Curry. And, oh, thank uh, you, sir. Are you familiar with uh, Dr. Welton's work? I am. The ISIS paper is very familiar with it. Yeah. I I'm, I just read this article where it says doc, where it says Obama will be more will do more work with racism after he leaves office. I, I think that's really interesting that they would put that up in the news. He was oh. attending some uh, some dedication to some project, and he says this. But I just I looked at I'm looking at all of this um, recent killings of uh, black males and uh, these modern day lynchings on television. I suspect that uh, the way these these events are portrayed on the media, how they're blown up on television, repeated through YouTube, um, I see a similarity with that happening and how after during Reconstruction in America where you would have lynchings and then people would take pictures of these, put them on postcards and distribute mm -hmm. them around the country. And that uh, the spectacle is mainly to reassure white people that uh, white supremacy is still in control and they're still able to maintain, um, still able to do work to maintain genetic um, survival through um, the annihilation of uh, black people, especially black men. Because black women are being killed too, but the ones that are being highlighted, if you notice, are black men. Um, no, absolutely. And I, I wonder how, how as, a, as a person who thinks a lot about these issues, um, for me, I see whenever I see this stuff, I keep uh, I can't help but think symbolically <clears throat> the way um, the ISIS papers uh, looks at things, and I wonder. I know you 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 have a way of presenting your work, but uh, in the in the back of your mind, do you see these symbols being played out? These uh, these uh, the crash theory symbolization of uh, of white supremacy. Do you, can you? Do you see the code behind the screen? Yeah, I think I think the I think we spoke about this before uh, on, on this show is, or on this program is that I think Welsingham has the cultural desire that whites have to colonize black people to do violence because of you know because of their population and their racial anxiety. Correct. Uh, I don't think many people who look at history can argue with that. Uh, what I think gets gets so many detractors is her argument that it's biologically determined, right? Uh, and that's why people call it pseudoscience, et cetera. But I think that when, you know, if you're a black person and you're looking at how white people have behaved throughout history, 
that you're pretty hard pressed to come up with a rational explanation for it, right? There's 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 no and and this is this goes into all the black men that are killed as well, you know that black male bodies simultaneously are the most phobic object because remember and this is you know this is why I try to point out to people when we analyze things and don't just buy into the stare to the to the pop culture ideology, when black women are killed, it's not that they're just killed in lesser number, it's that the reasoning of their deaths are different. So we think of it as violence, but we don't see a lot of white people being being able to say, I was afraid, I did it in self-defense, she was a danger to me and the rest of society. That's not the language we use to describe black women, right? Inferiority, you know, X, Y, Z, violent, we use that language, of course, but it's a different kind of phobia that's generated. Simultaneously, we have whites acting on this phobia historically as if it's part of their libidinal desire. In other words, they're claiming that there's an anxiety there that's caused, that's causing a fear, but that fear somehow becomes sexualized and becomes eroticized so that it stimulates them sexually. We see this with white women. We see this with white men. Right, So with white women, we see it play out in terms of what they think the black stud will do. We see this a lot in cuckold cultures, right, where mm-hmm. the white man is emasculated by watching the black beast have sex with, or the black stud have sex with the white woman. We see this also in but the end of white women. he's also turned on by it. Exactly, exactly. Humiliation turns them on, exactly. And then simultaneously, we see all these issues. Like you think back to Amado Diallo where white men seem to have a sexual fascination with anal penetration and sodomy of black men. So it's, it's, it's that nexus of sexuality that's, that's not taken into consideration. And this is why I think the idea that Wilson's working with in terms of the anxieties produced by whites being of numerical inferiority really opens up the, the, the case to look at some of these other cultural pathologies. See, because if, like, let's say you reject Wells. You know, for, I mean, you reject Wellsing, you know, then what, what, do, what do you have? Like, what's the explanation? It can't just be misunderstanding, because misunderstanding doesn't produce the kind of phobia erotics the way that, you know, just ignorance does. So there has to be some kind of deliberate desire there. And the question is, what's the origin of the desire? Is it produced by anxiety? Is it produced by fear? Is it produced, is it produced by the fascination with black male bodies? Is it produced with flat female body? Like, what is it about the exoticism of this black body that simultaneously becomes both beast and fuckable? And that's something that we're not we're not really trying to have that conversation. So, you know, I, I think I re- No, I'm sorry, go ahead. I, re- I, thank, thank, I will let you finish first. Oh, no, I, I think... So I think the ISIS papers are a first step in making a contribution to understanding the psychological disposition that drives white people. I don't think that we can uphold the biological aspect of it anymore, but I certainly think that its cultural, psychological, and worldview um, aspect of it holds true. The question is, do we just repeat that, or do we go on to something else, right? Or, or do we use that as a launch pad for other things? I think at this point we just have to, we have to use it as a launch pad. Um, and I, I think that what happens is the white academy is very quick to dismiss it because of its biologism, but at the same time upholds the same kind of stuff. When, I mean, Kant said the same thing about black people, right? It's the same kind of theory. Uh, so, you know, it's, it's a white person says they get away with it. A black person says that it has to be pseudoscience. Real quick, can I have a reply? Can I have another question? Go. Sure, sure, please. Okay, because um, your reply seems to fit in with a lot of uh, 
when I talk when I talk about this uh, theory with uh, other non-white people, um, I get the feel you call it biologism. Which I suppose you're referring to what she says about white people fearing white genetic annihilation mm-hmm. at the subconscious level. No, I think that part's accurate. I I just there's a kind of geneticism that you know uh, white people are biologically situated in this way. That that I, that that's what I meant by the biologism. I think okay, it's that they have I think a biological right, oh, yeah. Like a, like they have a biological um, uh, response to act genocidally, like it's within their yeah. genes. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Yeah, that that's the only part I disagree with. I think the rest is I think the rest is true. Okay, big, thank you. I because I suspect that I mean like we, I'm not white, and um, I suspect that I will never know what it actually feels like to be a white person. That I will I will not know what it feels like. To be afraid of genetic annihilation. Mm-hmm. Have you ever thought about that? Well, I that mean, you know, non-white people, people have no idea what it feels like to to realize I'm in the minority, and if I'm mixed with this pretty black woman, my child won't look like me, and for me, that's mm-hmm. a big problem subconsciously. Well, I think I think that. You see, this is, I mean, this is the whole problem with, like, how we, how we think of psychoanalysis, right? But I think that the anxiety that's produced by black people being killed so much is, is uh, a glimpse into mm. that. And I think that what happens is most white people don't think of themselves as a minority, which is an aspect of denial so that they can rationalize themselves as all-powerful, right? Mm. So that's why, I mean, think about it. So if you're actually the minority and you have this anxiety about being the minority, then you would produce something such that you never look like the minority. And this would be one of the aspects that everything is so Eurocentrized, right, that everything's about white people. Our values, our history, our art, our beauty, et cetera, are all about white people. Now, I'm not a huge fan of psychoanalysis, right? I don't like Freud, don't like Lacan, et cetera. But, I mean, if we're going to go that route, then I think that there is some aspect of kind of the libidinal economy of whites that allow us to see why they do what they do. Why they become so prominent, and you have to you see this is what you have to think about too, is that African societies and even Caribbean societies aren't like this. So there there's there's a kind of variety to to what constitutes their ethnicities, uh, their their racial variety, their cultural heritage, because so many different people interacted with them. It's this taxonomic system that we get from Britain, where everything's segregated, that really produces the kind of distance that you have between populations. You know. So, yeah, I mean, I think, I think part of that's certainly a cultural issue as well. Uh, appreciate it, uh, Caller Noah. We had uh, one other person that I wanted to make sure we got on as well. But uh, glad to get your voice in. Always grand to hear from listeners in different parts uh, of the world. Glad we got your call in, sir. Thank you, sir. For sure. Thank you. For sure. Uh, the person that dialed in uh, last four digits, five two three four five two three four did you have a question for dr curry your line should be open uh yes i do good evening guys good evening dr curry and good evening as they call it evening good evening um i did have a question um first i wanted to know if you don't agree that white people are genetically predisposed um towards the destruction of non-white people what do you think um, is the cause for them being the way they are? 
I think they've been solidified in certain cultural patterns based on, you know, their notion of civilization that produced the same effect. I'm just not, I'm not a, I'm not a biogenetic theorist, so I study history, culture, etc. So my view is going to be different than an evolutionary psychologist, right? So I think that if you have a civilization and you create certain taxonomies of ideas like that of race and you reproduce that in every civilization, that becomes culturally ingrained. That becomes part of your worldview. So you create structures, you create sociologies that give testament to that idea, and that's what we see. So that's why we see economic segregation and exclusion rise up next to uh, neighborhood segregation and exclusion. It's why you have the idea of you know uh, civilization and the non-civilized, the human and non-human, right? All these fit within that cultural pattern that whites have used to understand racial peoples. Okay, now, would you agree then um, with this? this uh, sentence, white people have been able to successfully conquer and commandeer the cultures of other people to reprogram those cultures towards a white supremacist worldview. Yeah, that would I be mean, accurate of your perception. Is that correct? Yeah. I mean, I think this is what you get out of uh, Black Skin, White Mass, the first chapter with uh, the French language. I think you get that from Wade Nobles. I mean, yeah. Okay. I, I don't see anything... I mean, there's going to be different degrees to which, you know, cultures don't fully become assimilated or taken on. They don't fully take in the white supremacist notion, but yeah. I mean, for the most part, you can look at colonized places throughout the world and find that the colonized population believes in some sense the type of inferiority uh, or suffer from inferiority complex brought on by the colonizer. Sure. Okay. And I had another question. Um, when you were speaking about the treatment of the black male body, I thought about the complete, excuse me, the complete and utter destruction of the body of Patrice Lumumba and um, how far they went to make sure that they didn't have a physical person to bury. So in other words, from an African uh, perspective, they not only tried to kill him physically, but they tried to kill him spiritually as well. Um, I thought about Ola Benga, which was the South African uh, man that was put on display in the Bronx Zoo um, in the early 1900s. And that created a, a fervor of fascination again with the black male body. And I wanted to, I wanted to ask you, because uh, black people have been so successfully mentally colonized, what would you suggest as far as going about re-educating our people as far as their complete and utter distrust of white people? Because during segregation, that was uh, basically uh, a daily reality for us, so there was no need for us to be educated towards that it was reality whereas today it seems like so many of us have been taught and trained to trust them on a level that even when others of ourselves or non-white people speak about racism they defend them um so what would you suggest as far as us going about re-educating our people and their uh complete and helping them to come up with a complete skepticism about their dealing with white people well look man i mean that's the million dollar question to be honest with you, like how do you how do you save the mentality of a people? Um, I can tell you it's certainly not easy. Um, you know, I mean, the the way I try to do it is is through students and writing, uh, which is why I do you know why I think shows like you know the cows is so important. Uh, most of my most of my work is speaking to black people on black talk radio or black uh, news outlets. Uh, so I think that's one way. But you have to understand that most black people really do gravitate towards the black people who are rewarded uh, with certain forms of recognition by whites. So, you know, the CNNs, the MSNBCs, you know, these people don't have profound research, you know, programs. They're not, 
uh, world-renowned scholars in that way, but they are the voices, right? Uh, you know, it's just like the beef that you get with Cornell West and Michael Eric Dyson. Those people have a certain kind of celebrity because they're the voices that people look to. They're not fundamentally better scholars. They're not on TV because they're better scholars than someone else. They're on TV because they, they represent a certain type of politics. So I think that our re-education has to be both us understanding systemic white supremacy and learning to distrust the opinions of black people that are given to us as spokespersons for the race rather than people that we choose or people that we see as being valuable to us. Um, but, you know, people have argued about this, black intellectual scholars and, and, and you know, uh, public people have argued about this for centuries. So, you know, I don't know if there's one short uh, fix-all answer. Right. And, and my last question would be, what is the name of your book and when, when will it be available? Uh, so the name of the book is The Man Not, uh, Anti-Blackness and the Homoeroticism of the Black Male Body. Uh, and I hope that it's out uh, in 2016. Uh, so okay. I'm finishing it up. I hope to have it out for review this summer. So we'll see what happens. We'll see what happens. I mean, it's a book that, that's really trying to talk about the black male not through identity but through kind of historical circumstance and context. So we'll see where it goes. Um, I think that the piece about Cleaver is going to be extremely controversial, but at the same time eye-opening because he does really see the prison in a way that I don't think has been articulated as of, as of recent. So, you know, but, you know, it's, it's the academy, man. There's all kind of politics about what you can and can't say. And then there's all kind of white people who make sure what you say gets heard versus not. So that's just how it works. Thank you so much, Tom. I wish you the best, and I'm looking forward to the book. I will be quickly ready to buy it. And um, thank you, guys, for this program. And, again, I'm in my line. Thank you. Good to hear from you, sir. <clears throat> Hope it was of constructive value. Um, you don't want to eat up your uh, whole evening, Dr. Curry. As always, yes, we really appreciate you uh, coming through to share some of your expertise. Um, before we uh, let you get out of here, uh, you, as I said, always have such great reading material. Uh, anything else you would recommend uh, that folks uh, get an eye on, check out next time they have some free time in the bookstore? Oh, wow. Man, there's so, there's so much stuff. Uh, there's so much stuff. I mean, given, given what, we, what we're seeing right now, I'd urge people to actually pick up um, Robert F. Williams' uh, Negroes with Guns. Uh, I think I think that his story and what he's reacting to would be very useful for us to have a more critical view of uh, Black Lives Matter. And that doesn't mean that we need to approach armed resistance from that way. But I think that it gives us a, a different perspective of what, of what we may need to consider. Uh, another book that I think uh, is really good on this, of course, is uh, there's a book by Cobb. Um, the Nonviolent Stuff Will Get You Killed? Yeah, 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 there it is. Uh, I think people should really look at that. Uh, again, not, not because I think people need to turn away from nonviolence, but I think we need to understand uh, what's actually going on before us and why some of the ideas that we're actually you know, trying to situate and advocate may not be fully informed. You know? So I think those are two things that people can start off with that, that, that are very relevant to, to the times and debates that we're having in front of us now. Outstanding. That is a great book. Uh, we had Mr. Cobb as a guest um, the program close of, of 2014. Uh, very. Yeah, that's uh, a bad boy. Yeah. Absolutely. That's a great book. I couldn't agree more. I think I have that book connected in my mind to uh, Dr. Umoja. We will shoot back. <clears throat> because yeah, that's how I teach him too. Yeah. Excellent. But we had him, they were on the program within the same 30 day span, which I thought was good because those books are so closely 
uh, they reference each other. Uh, yeah, they do, yeah. So, I mean, yeah, that I would concur. Those are great. We started with black self-respect. We can end black self. I think those are two excellent illustrations uh, of black self-respect uh, and black people coordinating, networking together uh, to value and defend uh, black lives. Uh, just phenomenal uh, illustration that frequently is not included when people discuss uh, the so-called civil rights movement, or even when people do uh, get into to discussing uh, the tradition of black self-defense, it generally doesn't involve people looking like that uh, in those areas. So, yeah, great books, great books. Uh, again, uh, Dr. Tommy Curry, you can check out uh, some of his different papers and what have you uh, online uh, at academia.edu. It's linked uh, in the description for the program, you can see different drafts and papers and what have you, some of the talks he's done before. Lots of great information. And uh, read the footnotes. Uh, encourage that all the time. Check the footnotes because he has a lot of uh, great articles, different books and sources where he gets some of this information from. It can really add to your uh, reading list. Thank you kindly, Dr. Curry. Always a pleasure to hear from you. Keep up the great work. And uh, we definitely will be looking, uh, looking for the publication, man. Looking forward to reading your work, sir. All right, sir. Thank you very much. For sure. Be safe. Enjoy your evening. I will. Thank you. Yes, sir. Context of white supremacy. Dr. Tommy J. Curry, always a pleasure to have him on the program. Uh, for folks who follow us on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash the problem is white people. Uh, I posted the uh, link for the book that we started off the program with, uh, Alanda Williams, Penny and the Magic Puffballs. Uh, she has a website. Uh, it's pennyandthemagicpuffballs.com. Uh, we'll see if we can get her on the program. And then I know we have uh, parents who listen to the program. Uh, if you want to uh, get some black reading material, if you have younger black children, uh, and definitely something that will encourage black self-respect uh, for black children, black girls with natural hair, Penny and the Magic Puffballs, Alanda Williams. Great reading material. Reading is more important than watching television. I'll say again, reading is more important than watching television. We will get a quick commercial. Uh, and then if folks have anything they want to make sure they get in before we wrap up, we'll do so. Uh, always grand to hear from folks in different parts of the world. Uh, our caller dialing in uh, from Norway. Glad he was able to get on as well. If you have anything you want to share before we sign off, we'll make time for that. But as I said, quick uh, commercial break, and then we'll be right back. Context of white supremacy. The Internet is full of half-truths and all-out lies. We've all seen them, and many people on social media complaining about it. Here's your chance to show and prove. WorldAfropedia.com is a black-owned and operated encyclopedia. There are several thousand articles, but we need help. We can't uncover all the truth ourselves. So please, join us and become a writer, editor, or blogger for WorldAfropedia.com today. Every little bit counts. We owe it to the future generations to put the truth out there. Visit WorldAfropedia.com, the African-centered encyclopedia a global database of African knowledge for the purpose of bringing about global African wisdom and understanding. WorldAfropedia.com RacismDaily.com, your number one source for global news reports on race, 
racism and overt actions of white supremacy from asia to the americas to europe to australia to africa racism is not a thing of the past it is our current reality be informed be globally informed you should be the first to know racismdaily.com 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 Is racism hurting you? On issues of race, are you unable to speak, think, and act with clarity and confidence? Are you tired of laughing when nothing is funny, smiling when you are not happy, agreeing when you really disagree? Counterracism.com, you can learn specific strategies and techniques to counter the behaviors of the people who practice racism in all areas of activity. Using words correctly, following counter-racist logic, even counter-racist science projects designed to reveal what racism is, how it works, and how to counter it. The open source code writing format allows you to pick and choose from a variety of counter-racist suggestions so you can produce the code that works for you. Stop by counterracism.com today and help replace racism with justice. That's counter-racism.com. Do you need a one-stop shop for all of your multimedia needs? Triumphant Multimedia is a skilled team of professionals with a passion for great marketing and chic design. Our specialties include consulting, brand development, copywriting, and creative graphic design that's second to none. We also offer photography, photo retouching, videography, and video editing. At Triumphant Multimedia, our goal is to provide highly effective creative solutions built to suit any individual need or budget. Give us a call at 678-732-8067 or check us out online at TRI multimedia.com Hi everyone, welcome. This is Justice with the Cows Radio program. If you want to learn about, understand, encounter racism, white supremacy, be sure not to miss a cows episode. We keep them jammed, packed with constructive information to sharpen your use of words to help eliminate the system of racism, white supremacy, ASAP. Also, to be able to invest in my counter-racist efforts, co-hosting the Cows Radio program, please visit my blog, justdojusticetoday.blogspot.com. You're just saying just buckets and buckets of words. Context of white supremacy. Uh, again, we will be back uh, at minimum. We'll be back uh, Friday. Asada Shakur, her autobiography uh, getting started on uh, Friday. Looking forward to that. 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. And uh, you'll just have to check the Facebook pages, the Black Talk Radio Network page for updates. Uh, if we uh, slide a program in between now and Friday, uh, which might happen. Check us on iTunes, Stitcher, uh, Blueberry.com, uh, obviously, Black Talk Radio, 
uh, network. Uh, you should be able to access the program. Tune in as well. Lots of different ways to access the program. iTunes should be working correctly. I know for uh, a few weeks there, it was not updating uh, the iTunes podcast for some reason, but uh, it should be all good now. It should be up. To, I don't. I don't think uh, this program will be there until I would say probably uh, Tuesday morning, early Tuesday morning. This program should be in the feed, but other than that, I think it's up to date. So for folks, if you were having any trouble there, try it again. You might need to refresh the feed, but it should be uh, all good. Anywho, uh, always good to hear Dr. Curry. Uh, I was appreciative of hearing his thoughts on uh, the film Dear White People because I got so much attention and continues to get a lot of attention. Uh, I was seeing where they were having like uh, what they call community screenings uh, in response to racism, white supremacy to get everyone together and watch this film and talk about uh, racism. And uh, yeah, I, uh, I shared many of his concerns about the film. And I think for people who heard me speak about this film, uh, as soon as I saw that White, number one, white people were pleased about this film. And then number two, that the filmmaker was a black male who publicly identified as quote unquote gay. Those were two immediate concerns uh, for me that this was not going to be a constructive project. And that was confirmed once I saw the film. But great to hear his, his commentary there. Uh, and then also uh, for the book, uh, we read a snippet from and he gave his response, The Delectable Negro. Human Consumption and Homoeroticism Within U.S. Slave Culture. Fascinating text. Uh, and uh, I believe white people edited this book, uh, again, to my uh, contention, important contention, I say, that white people are not ignorant. They are very informed about the system of white supremacy. I mean, we're just talking about their mammies and fathers and grandfathers and grandmothers and aunts and uncles and cousins. That's, that is the network, the empire of white supremacy. So yeah, they're very knowledgeable. <laughs> they're, uh, they're kinfolk. At any rate, um, we will hit the phone lines to see if folks have, uh, comments that they would, uh, like to share. Uh, I will say, um, frequently, uh, I don't think there's ever been a guest, uh, or a caller participant on this program where, uh, they agree with everything that I have to say, or everything that, you know, some of our guests on the program have to say, uh, and vice versa, that is to be expected. Um, you just process what is being said and, and you use your brain computer to process and follow the logic and make the best, uh, decision. Uh, according to your understanding, uh, that is the procedure. Um, I think I voiced on the program. I think I reiterated it today, but I think I'd said on uh, Saturday, I think different folks, um, different callers to this program, uh, as well as many other folks who write and, and talk about uh, what's happening in Baltimore, racism uh, in general. They had been saying that uh, this was, I understand the politics of, of not using the term riot, quote unquote, to uh, call these type of events. Uh, but I had expressed my view that I'm, I am hesitant about labeling uh, what's happening in Baltimore right now or what happened in Watts 50 years ago. I'm hesitant to label these events uh, rebellions, uh, as I said today, just because I don't see where 
this like struck a major blow against white people. Uh, and I could be missing something. I, I think I've said that repeatedly as well. I could be in error, but I just don't see that. Uh, if anything, it's it's black people that end up hurting uh, as a result of these incidents. Uh, and I just, at least for me, rebellion suggests that, you know, this was like a significant offensive, like we accomplished some sort of objective in the counter war of white supremacy. And I just... Uh, Maybe I'm, I'm, I'm ignorant. <laughs> Maybe I just don't know enough. But that was my rationale. And I just wanted to make sure because I know some folks, they don't agree and, you know, they think it is a rebellion and that's fine. Uh, but it's not anything uh, personal. I think I, I've said repeatedly that I could be an error. That's my opinion. But it's definitely not anything for folks to, to feel like uh, <laughs> if, I don't, if I don't share your perspective on that, to feel as though uh, I'm trying to say that you're incorrect or, you know, illogical. That's not the case. I'm just sharing my thoughts. Uh, it's something that I thought for a while. Really, I, I thought this, uh, you can take this all the way back to last summer because uh, people were saying the same thing uh, about uh, Ferguson. And as I said, we can take this L.A., Watts, wherever. Uh, I just, I, I, I consistently uh, feel this way about it. But at any rate, just want to make sure I got that out as well. If you have a different opinion, cool. And again, great for using your brain computer. Follow the thought, the logic not the person. Right on. So the folks that dialed in, if you don't have any comments you want to get in, uh, last few minutes, uh, what you heard from Dr. Curry or other observations, if you heard anything that didn't make sense, feel free or clarification. Uh, if you have any thoughts, uh, you should be uh, with us uh, if you need to uh, chime in. Any comments folks want to get in? If they're satisfied, that's cool in the gang as well. May I be heard? Yes, ma'am. Yes, first of all, Gus, I want to thank you for this program. I've never heard of Dr. Curry. <laughs> oh, your volume dropped again. Your volume, I heard when you said uh, you've never heard of Dr. Curry, and then your volume dropped really low. Thank you. Uh, it's still kind of low. I can hear you, but it's pretty low. What about now? Slightly better. Okay. Um, yeah, like I said, I never heard of, heard of um, Dr. Uh, Curry before. Like I also said, I never heard of Dr. Wellsling. I guess the reason why, because here, I guess the New York stations don't want to have these, these wonderful intellectual individuals on the air, as, as, as the doctor said, it's all about politics here in New York City, we have Steve Harvey who does his show. He, he would never, ever have anyone up there. There's another show that comes on, and they never feature people like this. The only time we would get any close to this, I guess, would be the open line, but they have cut their time, too. So I, I find this truly a treat for me to get all this, uh, this plethora of information. I mean, I feel like um, I'm just really, really elated, and I, I really, I think you're just doing a marvelous job. I want to go out and tell the whole world about it, but maybe I'm a little selfish because I kind of feel this is like a little reference for me, but I'll get myself as very, very true. Thank you. Oh, that's great. I hope it has been, continues to be worthy of your time and energy. And uh, I would just reference uh, Mr. Bob Law. I think a lot of folks thought he had great information and uh, I am in that number. I thought he had a lot of constructive things to share, uh, I think last week. Uh, but he 
was outlining how that is a deliberate part of the system of white terrorism, deliberately, willfully removing uh, black voices from the marketplace of ideas. I think that was the way he explained it, to not have serious conversation from the many different uh, black scholars uh, who have invested their time and studied this problem and have a, a thorough uh, historical and global understanding uh, of how the system works and views on what we can be doing to work against it, that you don't get that sort of exchange uh, on radio networks. You just get a lot of silliness, you know, comedians and telling jokes and, you know, just total nonsense <laughs> that is not going to help us at all uh, on a planet that is dominated by white terrorism, white supremacy. So yeah, he absolutely laid that out. And same thing that I had been saying, I think, I don't know if Dr. Curry and I talked about this when he was on the program uh, last year, but I know uh, we had said before uh, that there is a reason why you can have these situations happen. Uh, who gets brought on television? Whom is brought on television to talk about these issues, to be the quote-unquote spokesperson. Uh, a lot of times they'll get actors, entertainers. They won't get folks uh, who, who have some serious expertise uh, to talk about this subject matter and to be candid and honest about what the problem is. White people, uh, they won't go get uh, Dr. Francis Cress Wilson. They won't go get uh, De uh, uh, Dr. Uh, Kamau Kambon. They won't go get uh, a Mr. Fuller. Uh, they'll go get, you know, some other black person, another victim of racism uh, who might not be uh, as informed to talk on the subject matter. But, yeah, I totally agree and hope the program is of some value. Um, anybody else have anything they want to make sure they got in? If folks are satisfied, that's fine, too. Uh, if you dialed in, if you had a hand up, your line should be open. Anybody else have anything they want to get in before we uh, wrap things up? Great. I will assume folks uh, are satisfied. Uh, I will uh, again say that book is pretty interesting. This will probably be another example because um, I had some people ask, like, uh, what, uh, when did I get motivated or interested in reading and like really trying to seek out and find different books uh, about racism? Just when I learned that books like this existed, like, I just I had no idea that this sort of uh, information was out there that you could go and go to the library or the bookstore and they had these type of books <laughs> and that, you know, would give this type of information about uh, what white people have done, are doing, uh, will be continuing to do to black people and just learning that this type of information was out there um, that would give me a better understanding of the world in which I live and why things happen. I mean, wow, that was uh, that was super motivation. Uh, when I, you know, didn't understand that before, I wasn't as interested in reading, but just text uh, like the delectable Negro, human consumption and homoeroticism within U.S. slave culture. I mean, wow, that will motivate you to go get a book. Again, reading is more important than watching television. Right on. Uh, I hope folks uh, having a constructive week, whether it's getting warmer, definitely means to stay uh, codified. I will again encourage sobriety would be best under conditions of white terrorism. If you are going to consume, be codified, uh, get to one spot and stay there. If it's your residence or if you're with other victims of racism, get to their spot, 
stay there. Uh, definitely make sure that you're not consuming uh, any intoxicants in the presence of whites. That is super dangerous. I wouldn't want to be around any whites who are consuming uh, alcohol or whatever else either. Uh, and I would also be uh, mindful of the non-white people that you're going to be around. Cause I think frequently uh, there are too many uh, instances where non-white people get together and we have non-constructive contact, particularly when alcohol or other intoxicants are involved. So make sure you're with in the company of people where there's just not going to be unnecessary uh, chaos. If you got to consume again, under conditions of white terrorism, sobriety would be best. That's it. Invest. If you think the program is constructive, racism-notes.blogspot.com. Racism-notes.blogspot.com. PayPal is in the top right corner. If you're not feeling PayPal, drop me an email and we will get you a physical mailing address. Uh, the email untiljustice at gmail.com. Untiljustice at gmail.com. Right on. Creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people. We ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves. Remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times, in all places, each and every time we are in contact with another black person. It has been time. Replace white supremacy with justice as soon as possible. Context of white supremacy signing out. Thanks all for tuning in. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, no brother. Problem. You're a victim. Right. I'm a up. victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.